Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Jason, you're not the man I knew 10 years ago. It's not the years, Bill. It's the mileage. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1981 blockbuster Raiders of the Lost Ark. Starring Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, and Paul Freeman. Directed by Steven Spielberg, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 55 minutes. This movie is a winner of five Academy Awards, which included Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Effects, Visual Effects, and a Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects Editing. It was also nominated for Best Music Original Score, Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Picture. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Legendary filmmakers Steven Spielberg and George Lucas combined talents to create Indiana Jones, the bullwhip-cracking archaeologist assigned by the U.S. government to find the mystically empowered Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis can obtain it for their own evil use. Indy, Harrison Ford, joins forces with Marion Ravenwood, Karen Allen, and the two catapult from episode to episode of breathtaking adventures. Indiana Jones is fast becoming the world's favorite screen hero. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 everybody now. Dun, 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 Oh, my goodness, we're doing this. I know. Bill, this is our final pod for the season, and we're doing one of the best movies of all time, Raiders of the Lost Ark, a.k.a. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you're going according to the DVD box set. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark to me. Through it will always be Raiders of the Lost Ark to me as well. My friend, good to be doing with this with you, man. I'm, I'm glad I'm sharing this one in particular with you. This is a, this is a special one. Yes, we're going big. Yeah, go big or go home. Where do we start? Um, let's start where we always start with our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I'm going to tell you what I did see this in the theater. I saw it with my family. I must have been about seven years old. And you know what? If I'm going to be completely honest, and I should always, I remember it being exciting, but a bit too scary for me at that age. I don't know if I was just a little wuss. That's very possible. But you know, this film has melting faces. It has, well, I, I know him as Zapito, but uh, credited as Zapito. Uh, Alfred Molina, with a look of shock on his face, with sharp sticks are jutting out of his skull and his larynx. There's rats writhing while a swastika is being burned into the like this crate. There's religious aspects that inspire fear. There's skeletons collapsing on Marion Ravenwood in the tomb inside the wall of the Well of the Souls. I mean, I honestly believe it was just slightly beyond my grasp as a seven-year-old. I think, again, I knew it was a thrill ride. I understood that aspect of it. And that was no question entertaining. 
But the fear overtook the thrill of the adventure a little bit for me at that age. It wasn't until later on, and only probably a couple of years afterward, that, uh, of course, I owned the orchestral soundtrack, this you know score composed by the one and only John Williams. And I listened to that soundtrack ad infinitum, and the adventure took over. It became ingrained in me, the story the mythos, the the lore of the Indiana Jones universe. And I watched this movie a trillion times. And then I, I grow to love this movie more and more as, as the days go on. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely saw it in the theater. It was just a, a little bit scary for me as a kid. Gosh, it's Harrison Ford. It's the iconic costume. It's the fedora. It's the leather jacket. It's the bullwhip. It's the pistol. It's all of that. It's the serial adventure aspect of it. it there is, so those are obviously earliest memories for me. I'm just going to try to keep it short here because I could go on and on and on. How about you, Bill Bent? What are your earliest memories of one of the best movies of all time in the universe of the world? So I was, I was, yeah, I was, it was crazy thinking about this because my, my daughter's nine, my son's eight. So I was a little bit older than my son, younger than my daughter when I saw this first time. My dad took me to see it and I had no idea what this movie was. I knew nothing about it because my dad came home and said, hey, Gabe, su- surprise, I'm going to take you to the movies. We're going to go with our neighbors across the street, his dad and his son. And I'm like, what are we seeing? And he's like, Rise of the Lost Ark. I'm like, what is that? Oh, it has Harrison Ford in it. Who's Harrison Ford? The guy who played Han Solo in Star Wars. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in. Because, uh, you know, you're, you're too young to understand the whole concept of you don't realize actors have real names. You just refer to them as what you saw them on screen. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to see Han Solo in another movie. Absolutely. And we, we go to the theater in Philadelphia. It's on, I remember it's on Tyson Avenue. And it was still your old school where it only showed one film in the theater. It was like one of those small ones. It was before multiplex. And Absolutely. Sure. we're pulling up and the line is down the street and I'm like, Oh man, are we going to get in? Right. Yeah. And we get in line and I'm, you know, I, I remember I keep asking my dad, are we going to get in to see the movie? He's like, yeah, we're going to get in. Don't worry. There's, there's plenty of seats. We're going to get in. And I'm still like, what's the name of this movie again? And he's like, Raiders of the Lost Star. <laughs> and then you get to the point where you actually reach the theater because there's a whole bunch of stores it's like that. And then, you know, seeing the poster and kind of looking at it and you're just kind of, Ooh, okay. This is, this looks interesting. I don't, you know, I still don't, I still have no idea what this movie's supposed to be about or anything. And then we go and we get our seats and we're, we're off center. We're, we're one of the sides in, in the back. Mm-hmm. And I just remember watching that opening and the really cool transition from the Paramount logo to the mountains. Absolutely. And I was like, great Oh, that's dissolve. really cool. Yeah. But that opening, I remember just being totally hooked, but the same as you. I mean, there was a lot of frightening moments that right. the, the ending scene um, with the, the spirits going around and the, and the one, you know, changing into the skull and, and thinking this is a PG film, like, wow, it's crazy. But I just remember loving it. And it was just great. It was just such a great time. And I think it's, it's weird too, because I think it's one of the few times I actually went to a movie with my neighbors across the street. It was usually like the moms would take all the kids. And mm-hmm. this is the first time it was the dads 
going with the sure. sons going to see the film. So that, that always yeah. stuck with me too. But I love that movie. But I think about like trying to show that movie to my kids. I'm like, no way. It would not fly at all. They'd I was be... about to say something along those lines. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, they just, they're kind of wusses. I'll be honest. <laughs> I would say there it's like being right on the edge of the appropriate age. Not to just watch it, but to digest it properly. Right. To consume this properly. Like, I can't wait to show it to them, but I'm like, I still got to wait like another three or four years before they get it. Right. Because you want them to appreciate, you know, they're not going to appreciate it as we appreciate it now, but they'll, you want them to take in the excitement and the adventure and to be truly entertained and not just having nightmares or takeaways of, like I said, melting faces or, yeah. Uh, you know, frightening ghosts or apparitions or whatnot. You want them to love the the action adventure aspect. But I do remember another super exciting thing was the fact he had a bullwhip. And I just thought that was so cool. Considering loving lightsabers and laser guns and yep. Indiana Jones has a bullwhip. Wow, that's really neat. You just shoot it out there and grab someone by the arm and, and takes a gun out. I would totally oh, fascinated it's a, by it's that too. Great call. Great call. It was unique. And then also because I was brought up Catholic, the fact they were looking for the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments, like I knew that story. So that was cool Absolutely. too. Because I that related to me. I'm like, oh, okay, I know what the I know what the Ark is then. I know what the Ten Commandments are. I know what that kind of stands for. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a cool element too. Me like too. I still didn't get the whole Nazi element at the time. I just knew they were bad. I never realized how bad they were. Right. You knew the bad guys were really bad. Yes. You had an understanding of that. Yeah. I was old enough that I got the story enough that I could enjoy it. And there was enough elements that I knew, not knowing nothing going in, that it really kept my attention. And just all that action. It just nonstop. It was just craziness. I loved it. And Awesome. It really is my favorite, my favorite movie of the 80s. Yeah. Hands down. It's number one on my list. That's that's a great call, Bill. You know, you touched on a lot, which uh, I may expand upon in my initial thoughts. But uh, it's funny that you ended, yeah, your favorite movie, the 80s. Uh, I, it's hard to argue with that. For me, it's going to be The Empire Strikes Back. But this is a close second. That's my number two. So I'm just flip-flopped on that. And it's, it's you know, so these are the types of films, I think, for us to that it could depend on the day or the mood you are in when you're watching it, you know, where I might flip these around. Cause it was interesting too, because when we talked about doing this movie, we both said to each other, this is probably the first movie that we're doing on this podcast where we probably did not have to watch the movie again, going in. Correct. Because right? we have seen it so many times. Yeah. We know this one, like the back of our hands. Uh, there's no question about it, but I still watch it twice anyway. For getting ready for the show. So I think that's care. great. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of which, I'm just gonna say happy birthday, Indiana Jones. Happy 40th, 40th to the professor years. of archaeology, not an archaeologist, the professor of archaeology, the expert of the occult, obtainer of rare antiquities. It's unbelievable. 40th anniversary of Indiana Jones this year, or I should say, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. And I was fortunate enough to go see a screening of this with uh, Marwan and Chris, our friends and contemporaries and co-workers and teammates. And 
it was a blast. It was great to see it on the big screen again. But uh, I did rewatch it again for this podcast uh, with pleasure. And this is a game changer. There's just what can you what more can you say about this movie that hasn't been said? It's difficult, but we will put our own spin on it or give it our own personal take and or attachment to it uh, because this definitely changed the game. You were talking about the bullwhip and I was like, yeah, it's unique. We hadn't seen anything like this before, Bill. Had we seen iterations of this? Were there earlier versions of the action adventure hero? Absolutely. James Bond was out there. Steven Spielberg wanted to make a James Bond film. George Lucas came up with Indiana Smith. They got together. And what do we get? We got Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of everything. But we hadn't seen this. And this guy's got a bullwhip. It's like, is this the most practical tool for a professor of archaeology or or obtainer of rare antiquities? I don't know. I don't care. It's different. It's cool. And it works. Again. This is the film that changed the face of action adventure. This is right. I mean, oh yeah. Again, what what, what can you say? Do are we ready to get into some other initial thoughts? Or yeah, I mean, I'm kind of off to the races here a little bit because I'm excited, man. Go go go! I'm, I'm a little bit speechless here, but Indiana Jones is definitely one of the most identifiable, if not the most identifiable, action hero in the world. You, if you saw, he's one of those. Characters, you see the silhouette and you know who it is. Oh, yeah. Because of the fedora and the bullwhip and the the jacket and the satchel, right? Can't forget the satchel, just like Zach Galifianakis in The Hangover. Not as cool. He doesn't pull it off as well. <laughs> Look, simply put, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Harrison Ford, the triple threat. For me, outside of Star Wars, this is why I got into the entertainment business. I watch this movie and I say to myself, I want to do that. I want to do that. That's the inspiration that Raiders of the Lost Ark provides. It's one of the reasons why I am in the Los Angeles area today. There's no question about it. This movie is first and foremost an action adventure that will come up ad nauseum probably in this podcast, just that expression, action adventure. However, for me, without question, it has that you know historical aspect. You touched on the religious aspect when you're talking about the history of the Ten Commandments. And there's the fantastical element in this film because of what happens throughout regarding the actual Ark of the Covenant, which it also provides a sense of mystery. So this is the perfect combination of me because you're talking about thriller, action adventure, historical aspect, the fantasy it has the perfect blend of all of my favorite elements and it's pre- you know presented in a way that's entertaining yet on a level intriguing so now we get into the suspension of disbelief which for me and still to this day upon rewatch this very afternoon that suspension of disbelief mostly holds up bill Bant, which is saying something these days yeah that's one of the things i i love about this movie is we could have our minds wiped and mm-hmm. this could come out this summer and we'd all still be blown away by this film. And I was really watching like, yeah. what would I have to change now from then to now, just because of, you know, how, right. how we are about everything. And I'm like, I don't know if there's really that much I would need. They would need to change. I would subtle still tweaks. love this. It would just be very subtle tweaks. 
special effects still hold up all these years later. Yeah. You know, the storyline, because it is taking place in the past, you could pretty much leave it 98% the way it is. And people would be like, oh my God, this is one of the greatest movies I've seen. You got to go see this. I, I think people still think that way. A hundred percent. And this is one of those things where you go into a movie and we appreciate it on a certain level because we have some experience in filmmaking and different aspects of filmmaking. We went to film school together, et cetera. But for the average film goer, anyone you know that it goes to see this and is just blown away because you can sit down for two hours and truly escape and absolutely be thrilled. You know, for you and I, it was a little bit different because we wanted, like I said, we say sit back and go, how did they do that? How did they do it? And you and I just recently uh, had the pleasure of going to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and one of the great exhibit, it was a miniature like exhibit, was in the sound design area. And it was a breakdown of the opening action sequence from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they go into, you know, the opening sequence, which takes place where we have Indiana Jones going into the cave to retrieve the idol. And they break it down from the sound design perspective, every aspect of it. And you see how it is put together. You see how the magic is made. And you and I and Chris and Marwan were standing there watching it. And we know a lot of this. We've either researched it or heard about it or seen behind the scenes before. And we're still just. Still amazing. Yeah. It was still amazing. Completely enveloped and uh, by it and just engrossed in it because it's, it's fascinating. And then when you see the final product, you're just like, yeah, that's exciting. They, that's magical. And you have a total and complete and true appreciation for the process of filmmaking. And you want to share that with other people. So there's that. And you had brought up kind of like the then and now. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm going to get back to that suspension of disbelief with this film. Because we talk about a lot of movies and do they still hold up? And what was the experience like as a child watching this film versus being an adult now seeing it through different eyes? And a lot of the film going experience depends on the where and when and with whom I saw the movie versus, you know, today when you you can watch it on a television and in different formats and different media, it's just, it's a different experience for different reasons, better or worse. And I still get excited when I'm watching this movie and I'm watching it from every aspect and whether it be the sound design, you rattled off the Oscar nominations and they're all more than worthy. No, oh, yeah. Could have won every one of those awards and you would have been like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Because this is the example of everything coming together in the best possible way. It's a masterpiece performed and executed by true masters of their craft the best version of what you hope to happen as a filmmaker working with other artists. So speaking of like the suspension of disbelief, which is more difficult to attain nowadays with the, you know, especially with the more life experience I gain, whether it be as a result of age or exposure, I on a certain level now know that certain, certain things aren't real. Uh, and I do understand like that this film is based on the serial adventures of the time. George Lucas was heavily influenced by them. And for those of you that don't know what that means, the term serial, meaning 
that's comparable to a mini series of today where you it is an episodic adventure, but there is a through line. You're following one plot unfolding throughout. It isn't an episodic uh, one story that's beginning, middle and end each week. You you following a continuous story from episode to episode. And that's what Lucas was going to see at the theater, you know, influenced by science fiction of the time and and uh, Flash Gordon and those types of serials, et cetera. And then wants to do this and, you know, obviously collaborates with Spielberg and you can read all about it. You know, so I understand there's that entertainment level of it, but this movie has grit. This is film. It, it feels like a historical document. Uh, like I speak of the, it does have an historical aspect to it, but it's like I'm watching history being made or unfold before my eyes. And it's just, that's, it is presented as such. As a fictional film, it creates a feeling of escapism, which allows us to go on a journey into a fictitious world. But some films have a way of hitting me either on a visceral or intellectual level that makes me think this could actually exist in this world. And that's something special. For instance, some of the other Indiana Jones films, they have their place, no doubt, and are achievements for different reasons, but they don't have the same effect on me that this particular film is. And I know I understand it is the first, and maybe it's because it's the first time I saw anything like this. But the other Indiana Jones films have a different layering of the film aspects, which isn't as palatable to me. One goes a little too dark. A little one goes a little too heavy on the cheese. Another one is just plain bananas. This one has the perfect balance. And that's just my opinion. It's not like a perfect film, but it's pretty damn close. There's an element of realism, I suppose. I don't want to go as far to say that this movie is realistic, but there's some, it's based on some factual evidence. There's based on reality, whether it be historical fact or artifacts or there's elements of history that I'm aware of or not learned about that I'm fascinated about in this movie. There's an authenticism to the locations, to the way that this is shot, uh, the, everything from the lighting, like we talked about sound design, the casting, the performances, the costume design, art direction, set direction. It feels lived in. And that's why still to this day, uh, the suspension of disbelief holds up. Do you, I have some other initial thoughts, but I don't want to go on forever here. What Do you have some other uh, or some initial thoughts, Bill Ban? Interesting, because watching it, knowing that you're going to discuss this on a podcast, I was trying to find things that I've never really paid that much attention to as much as before. Because you know, I just sit there and you're just you're just enjoying the film. And I think the two things that stood out to me watching it this time was like I always knew that Indiana Jones was trying to find the Ark for the government, but I. I guess there was just something like I didn't realize like Marcus brokered a deal through the university with the government to to make this happen. Like for some reason, I just never caught that before. Sure. Marcus is almost like Indiana Jones's handler in a sense. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, I never really picked up on that. I was always more like they were colleagues. Yeah. Now he seems more like a handler. And he's like, yeah, if you're looking for something. Almost as if he was like his agent or manager or, like you said, broker of some kind. Yeah. So I I found that aspect interesting. And then the second thing was, I mean, when you think, and you you mentioned this in the beginning, when you think Indiana Jones, you think the fedora, the bullwhip, the satchel. The last 20 minutes of the film, he doesn't have any of that. Right. 
And I forgot about that. He is without his three main signature elements for the last 20 minutes of that that movie. Because once he jumps on the U-boat, he doesn't have any of that stuff with him. Sure. So I thought that was kind of cool. It's just one of these movies, like every time you watch it, you're, I'm trying to pay attention to more of the other elements instead, just to see if I can catch something and watch it for that. That was the two things that really stood out the most. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm still getting something out of this every time I watch it. I love it. We'll get into it with like favorite scenes because those will change for me upon each time I watch this. There's different elements of different scenes. There's different music cues that will pop up. I'm a huge John Williams fan, as you are. Again, just the the, the stunt work in this movie. I'm watching uh, all the extras do their Amazing. thing in this movie. I adore the sense of place in this movie, the sense of scope. I love the, there's so many great wide shots, master shots. Yes. That are gorgeous. Doug Slocum, director of photography. I mean, just, just amazing stuff in this. Mm-hmm. The attention to detail. I mean, it's on the smallest level. Everybody was doing their job on this. And yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Because you're talking about detail it was when um, Marcus goes to Indy's house. Oh, yeah. And I was really like looking around. The, Absolutely. I'm, I wasn't even watching this scene. I was just I'm like, what does he have in here? What is what is all this? I was thinking can, I, can I figure out thing. what is he reading? What is like when he opened his closet? I'm like, what's in there? Yeah. I was so into trying to figure out what makes Dr. Jones tick or what what is he doing when he's not what out Indiana there Jones adventuring? house looks like? Yeah. What yeah. what are the photos that he, or pictures that he has on the wall? What's the artwork that he puts up there? Are those also historical finds or rare antiquities that what has he collected or has he been allowed to keep or maybe not allowed to keep that he has around like trophies that he keeps around or what's key what does he keep on his mantle? Yeah. It's great stuff, man. You want to know everything about this world, this hero, this adventure, and the supporting cast is brilliant. The casting unto itself is brilliant, but I also, you know, notice every time I can't help it. I mean, I am just a big fan of the soundtrack. I'll just repeat that over and over mm-hmm. again. It's, it is a character unto itself in this movie. And it comes in at the perfect times and is so supportive throughout. Like Marion's theme when it comes. I mean, I, I just, I love seeing even India after we think Marion Ravenwood has died in a, a terrible explosion. And Indiana Jones is wallowing in a in the drink and you just hear Marion's theme in the background and it's just a beautiful set. Like it's just gorgeous. Like everything, all those details I can't get enough of. So. Oh, here's another, yeah. Another initial thought. Yeah. Uh, Paul Freeman is Belloc. Right. I was like, why was I not seeing more of this guy in yeah. movies? But it's like, how is he not more in more big films? He's like an amazing protagonist for Indiana Jones. And it does fall into the whole Indy's the light side, what Belloc's the dark side. And they are kind of the same person. But And he does mention that. He's like, one little nudge would take you over to my side. Or the same could be said for Belloc. You know, one little nudge can make him search for antiquities for good. But uh, I thought they, they played so well together. He was so great in that role. He should have been way bigger. Agreed. So I just want to give a shout to him. That just kept going through my mind the whole time I'm watching this. I'm like... Where was Paul Freeman anywhere else in the in the 80s? Where where was he not in any of those other big 80s films I loved watching? No, he has wonderful presence, wonderful delivery. He's a wonderful actor. Agreed. Mm-hmm. He's got a great look. 
And I loved the, any scene he has with Harrison Ford is electric. Yeah, because he's always in the nice, white, clean, pristine outfit. And he's playing the bad guy. Right. They kind of they, Indy. Yeah. They flip that. His beaten up leather jacket. Everything's torn, sweated through. I mean, you could just tell looking at him, he stinks. You know, you're still right. you're rooting for him, though. Oh, yeah. And then just Belloc, you're just like, oh, you suck. I hate you. You're so evil. Stop taking indie stuff. That, oh, yeah. He's a thief. And that's the thing is, that, I mean, I guess you could say they're both thieves, but is what, what is their intention, though? Right. Thief with a heart of gold, or are you doing it to put in a museum? Or you, there's a, you could look at it a few different ways. We may get into it later. We'll yeah. see. We'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, Paul Freeman, great casting. John Rice Davies, is it John Reese or John Rice Davies? Has Sala, amazing. Karen Allen, Marion Ravenwood. It's just great. I, you know, there are a couple other just fun initial thoughts as I was watching this. I love that when we see uh, Indiana Jones as Professor Jones and he's in his classroom, you know, you notice right off the bat, uh, there's some great moments in that scene, but I didn't forget. And watching this time, just looking around the classroom, that that class is almost all girls. I think it's just the one guy. Is there only just one guy in the yeah, whole the one who class? drops the apple? Yeah, I think he's the only guy in the class. I couldn't. I, I thought there may have been a couple other guys. I knew it, there were obviously a lot of girls in there, and they're looking at him all dreamy. And then you have the, the great, you know, uh, yeah. girl that writes on her eyelids, "Love you." So when she blinks, you "I love you." Great stuff. But I didn't realize that almost the entire class was made up of women, which makes sense. You know, hey, Indy, Indy's a stud. So. One other initial thought I've had watching this, and I remember thinking this when I saw it in the theater with Chris Marwan, the Egyptians seem to absolutely love Indiana Jones. Throughout the movie, whenever there's just a, it's all the extras, it's all the, like the actual characters though, they're in character as like the Egyptian uh, locals and whatnot. No matter if they're supposed to be pulling guns on him or working for the Nazis as the quote unquote strongbacks or whatever, whenever he's around, they love him. Oh, yeah. Always crowding around him and cheering him. And it just, it cracks me up. It's just funny. They're, they're very supportive of Indiana Jones. Um, I just wanted a couple of in, initial thoughts that I thought of were just a, actually a couple of stories that I was on vacation several, several years ago, fortunately for me in Hawaii. And we were on the beautiful lush island of Kauai. And we took a little kayak trip right down the river, right where they shot that famous scene right at the opening where Indiana Jones is being chased by the natives, uh, which is supposed to be in Peru. It's somewhere in South America. And he swings on the vine into the river uh, to be, to go join up with Jock on the plane. And uh, I was right there. Right. And they, uh, there used to be the actual vine that Harrison Ford swung on, but people had cut off pieces of it and it no <laughs> longer uh, remained. So, but uh, I have a photo of me somewhere in that kayak, right where he swung on the vine into the, into the river there. So that's cool. Those are my connections, just a couple of my connections to Indiana Jones and Raiders Lost Ark. So I think that's it for my initial thoughts. I don't know if you had anything else. No, let's uh, move on to favorite scenes. Let's talk about some of our favorite scenes without talking about the whole movie. Oh, uh, it's going to be tough. Can, I know. If we can, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Yeah. And I will tell our listeners right now uh, that we are going to, we are actually eliminating our fun facts and trivia segment. And we're just going to insert that segment into our favorite scenes and favorite moments segment. So we'll probably just be peppering in some trivia throughout the mentioning of our favorite scenes and moments. Okay. So first favorite scene, obvious, the opening. Has to be. I mean, it just has to be. I mean, right there, that's a movie in itself. I could have just watched that and they could have rolled the credits and dad, that was the greatest movie I ever saw. That was awesome. It was kind of fast, short, but it was just great. That would be a serial episode unto itself, probably back in the day. Like if you, like way back in the day, if you went to a movie there, you just watched a moving picture for 15 minutes. You know, that would be an entire episode of an ongoing Indiana Jones adventure. It's awesome. So the two or three of you that have never seen this movie before. So the movie starts off where we get to meet our character, Indiana Jones, and he's in South America and he's got his crew with him and they're going through the jungles and they come upon this totem pole and it scares, and we don't know why it scares off half of the people that he's hired to help find. Well, we don't even know what it is at this point. Right. So we're like, Ooh, this is, you know, big stuff. And then part of his group try to turn on him. And that's when we see him for the first time and shows us the whip and breaks up this map where he's trying to find this temple. And in this temple, there's this idol and him and Cepito. Cepito. Yes. Him and Cepito are the only two left. They're going to go into this temple to find this idol and it's booby trapped throughout. And it's just great because you see how Indiana Jones tries to just going through the temple, figure ways out. I remember the scene with the tarantulas or the spiders. Oh, heck yeah. Oh, and the whole theater was freaking out. Absolutely. Because it's just great. Cause they're walking down. You see like two or three tarantulas on uh, Indy's back and sir. And he just starts brushing off this whip and he just does that whole thing where he just tells him to like spin around. And there's like love 50 it. back there. It's just like, Oh my God. Always love that moment because that's just, again, an example of smart filmmaking within a matter of 10 seconds, because when you see the tarantulas on Indy, you're like creepy, get those things off him. And he so calmly and nonchalantly just brushes them off with his bullwhip. Yep. And then to see Cepito turn around and have a hundred on his back is like, Oh, now the effect is even enhanced. Like that's just like, it's a small thing, but that's clever. And Alfred Molina as Cepito has such a wonderful reaction on his face. Like he's, He's losing his shit. Oh, yeah. Trying to stay calm, but he's reacting as you and I probably react. It's great. Yeah, because it's even funny, too, because when he's turning around, for some reason, Indiana Jones is turning away. So the audience sees Cepito first before he sees what's on all those spiders on his back and then just knocks him down. Just the fact that their feet, I'm like, oh my God, I would just, how do you not step on those? I don't know. Oh, it's totally creepy. But even on another level, what's smart about this is there's actually a little bit of character establishing going on here. Because when I mentioned Indiana Jones is so calm and cool in that moment, it's as if he knows something that these tarantulas aren't poisonous or they're not dangerous. And if you just calmly brush them off, they'll just fall off of you. They're fine. They're not. They're just on you because you're in their environment, in their territory. And that's all. You do not need to fear them. So uh, you always already get the sense that he is experienced. It's just smart, right? He doesn't even have to say anything. It's just a nice a device, 
a story device and it works mm-hmm. great in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Cause another cool thing about it too is like Sapito always wants to rush ahead and, and he's very cautious just from experience. He's like, all right, we're not going to be running down this hallway because yeah. Why is there a light beam? That's just so out of place. We get several here. moments of that. Yeah. Uh, establishing his experience and yeah, character development right through, through, through those uh, moments. And then he briefly mentions there was another archaeologist that was after this idol also. Forrestal. Yep. He doesn't know what happened to him. And they go through the one hallway with the light beam and he triggers it. And unfortunately, there is Forrestal, who's probably only been there maybe maybe a month. Not even not even a couple right. of he's months. Not, he's not completely de- decomposed. Yeah. yeah. So like the race was on. So this is, yeah, this is a recent find. And then they do the swinging over the pit, which is so awesome. Oh, hell yeah. So many things in just this opening. It's it's loaded. It's absolutely loaded. And then you come into the main hallway and you see the idol sitting over there. And of course, Sapita wants to run. And, and he's like, nope, something's not right. Oh, there's a great line there, too, because he says, we have oh look the idol's right there we like it's we're, we've made it there's nothing to fear and uh, something along those lines and indy says that's what scares me yeah and then he realizes that the way the tiles are set up not actually tiles are pressure plates right that they're about to step on yeah yeah and they're triggered into the wall because then the way you look at the wall art and it's got all like these faces and stuff and but they're hollow eyes and hollow mouths Right. Step on a pressure plate, it triggers a dart that comes out of the mouth and the eye. Awesome. And it's just so cool how he just navigates it all. And then once he gets to the, the statue, and there's like just that whole great scene where he's just looking at it and just pick it up. I don't understand right. why he had the bag or what he's doing with the sand. And that always just fascinated me as a kid. And the fact that he thinks he's got the weight, because you don't know. Is that solid, solid gold? Is it hollowed gold? And he switches a sandbag with the idol and nothing happens. And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> and he's got such a oh, Harrison Ford, man, some great acting moments in there too. His reactions are great. Oh, thank God. And then all of a sudden the pedestal just starts lowering. Oh shit. What's going to mm-hmm. happen. And then you just hear all this rumbling and crumbling. And then the temple just literally just starts collapsing on them. And now they have to escape. And he literally just runs straight across the the hall. All the darts, all the out darts are flying in the air. Yeah, oh, and yeah. great sound design, like we talked about. We watched how they layered all the oh, sounds, yeah. sound effects into the scene. But you hear the <laughs> as all the darts are flying by, and it's just barely getting ahead of it all. And the music stumping, and you're just oh man. And then Cepito does the turn on him, and it's going to leave him there. Right, and the whole yeah, the leap across the pit oh so intense i think he's gonna fall and then he grabs the branch and he thinks he's okay and then the branch starts giving and and then when he goes through the slide i remember when he went through the sliding door and everyone gasped when he went he stuck his hand back through to get the hat or to get the uh, i'm sorry yeah, this the is whip. the whip the grab this is whip. the whip i'm thinking yep. temple of doom is where he yep. actually goes yeah, back to the hat. hat yeah the fedora yeah this one it's the whip yeah and then the first yeah jump scare for me was then he runs into Sapito who triggered the set uh, off that booby trap and he got the stakes yep, through his then, whole body. And then you think, Oh, okay. He's good. Now he got through that. And then the infamous boulder. Holy shit. That was so fucking cool. Yeah. 
all of a sudden you just hear this rumbling and he turns to look to see what it is and that expression he makes you're like holy crap what does he see and then you just see this huge boulder just coming down which is great too because like when you go back and watch it you see them walk through that hallway and now right. you know like there's a boulder, there's a boulder up, there. up there that's there's yeah, a boulder up there. it's already set to be released if you trigger a booby trap yeah so cool and then he comes just jumping through all those cobwebs gets out with the idol and you're like leaping oh, out of the cave entrance with it through that whole mess of cobwebs is amazing just yeah. barely getting out in time and just completely covered and then goddamn belloc right there <laughs> and yeah jones does all the dirty work and it's got to hand over the idol damn oh just awesome i love that you were going through that that almost like just shot by shot because it's priceless. Yeah, you know, just so many elements in a 10-minute sequence. It is. And f- again, this is storytelling at its best because you mentioned this earlier. The, from the jump, we have a great dissolve from the Paramount logo into the mountain of in South America. I think it is per- right. whatever. South America. So we know it's not South America, 1936. We get a sense of place sound design kicks and you hear the wildlife, right? You know that they're going through the jungle and they're dirty and they're sweaty and you're watching their footsteps and they come across a, a dart that's in the side of a tree. And uh, Zepito walks up and, and says, uh, the Jovitos, yes. this is Jovitos are here. They've been oh, uh, right. there three days. Cause they he, find like, the dart. tastes the poison on it. And you're like, and he's, it's all so tactile. This is what I'm talking about a little bit, Bill. And I don't know if I said it well. Uh, I don't think I was speaking very well when I'm trying to make a point about suspension of disbelief, but there are elements in this where they're just little tricks and little things that characters do that give you either a sense of place or time or in it. You're just, then it gets you completely engrossed in the situation. And it becomes like, that's a moment, like a tactile moment where you're like, Oh my God, that's a real poison dart. Who are the Hovitos? And or like there's these natives that are on their tail that have been chased that are following them. So there's already an evil like a presence that's unknown, the fear of an unknown enemy out there. So that adds a whole element. And then could this be one of the best entrances of a hero of all time? Like the opening shot? Because what's brilliant about this? We do not see Harrison Ford's face until he f- turns around after He's a threatened. bit of action. Right. Yep. We're following this unknown guy. This this He's the leader. He's leading these men through the jungle. He's got a leather jacket on and a fedora. We see him from the back and et cetera. And he's got a bullwhip on his side and he's trying to put them. He's I love. See, again, the details. The map is torn. He's got a piece of the map. It's in pieces. He's putting it together, trying to figure it out. There could be a whole story about just getting that map because it could have been like finding three different pieces. I want to close up the map. I want a prequel to Raiders Lost Ark just leading up to this scene. Yes. Everything that it would. So you are spot on with this, Bill. Everything from that, you know, the the, the birds coming up. Clearly, uh, there's that um, mystical element here because the natives are afraid of whatever gods that are. They had built these, like you said, totem poles, these totems too, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's already now instilled in us. So we're establishing all these things. And clearly, I guess the character's name is Baranka. This is not Alfred Molina's character, Cepito, but the other guy who has an alternate agenda 
yep. decides to pull a gun on Indiana Jones because what they're going after is clearly valuable and everybody wants it for themselves. And he pulls a gun on Indiana Jones. This is where we get to see him in action. He pulls the bullwhip off of his hip and snaps it back and snaps it forward and yanks the gun out of the Baranka's hand. And he goes fleeing off into the jungle and iconic shot. Harrison Ford literally steps into the light. He goes from darkness into light and we see the five o'clock shadow and the perfect face of Harrison Ford with the fedora on. It's like, boom, there's your hero. Establishing Mm -hmm. shot, done. We're good to go. (laughs) Like, it's just, that's it. And we're off to the race. So like I said, so he goes into the cave and then we have the, yeah, the, the booby traps. And I love the setting too. Cause like you said, we know what's coming. We've seen it so many times, but it's all kind of already, it's there, the lighting, the, the sense of place, but the ancient temples that have these booby traps and hidden entrances or secret, you know, pathways and whatnot. I always love that. They're already like preset. It's kind of like a Goonies effect too, yep. where it's like, there's a mechanical aspect of these booby traps, but it's all man-made. Uh, there's nothing electrically like electrical or powered. Maybe it could be water powered, I suppose, but uh, like hydraulically, but uh, otherwise these are all ancient booby traps that still are effective at this point could go off at any time. So all of those elements and the, the music cues that moment when he goes for the idol and makes the transfer for the, the bag of sand to the, the just the music there. And he does that when he's just kind of looking at it stroking and stroking his chin, stroking yeah. his chin. And then he makes the switch and then he kind of gives a tip of the, the fedora yep. to the, the gods, like almost like saying, yeah. thank you very much. And then of course, everything goes to hell. Small things like that. Absolutely wonderful. Then when the, the boulder chase, meaning the boulders chasing Indy, he shot that several times and Harrison Ford was running ahead of the boulder with each take, but did actually trip one of the times and fell onto his knees and then gets back up. And they, that's the take that they kept in the movie. Yeah. Uh, which is great because realism. And again, this is what I'm talking about. Suspension of disbelief are here, like you see the sweat on the faces. He's run, like, he's really doing that. There's not a lot of special, like there's a lot of practical effects in this opening sequence. But then again, like you said, at the end, jumps out in the nick of time. Our hero barely escapes by the skin of his teeth and only to fall into the hands of the enemy. But again, sound design is so cool because he jumps out and the first shot is a close up of a Hovito native with a spear like in his face. And then it goes to another shot of a different Hovito, then a medium shot, then master shot. And there's like a hundred of them standing yeah. in the jungle. And you're like, oh, shit, you're done. <laughs> You are so who, done. Who's standing there giving the commands, but all clean and pristine, sort of, I guess you could say, as you could be in the, with his pith helmet on, I guess, is uh, Belloc, mm-hmm. right? And, and of course, and that's the cool thing. Again, like from a story thing is like you mentioned, Indiana Jones, before he goes into the cave of Cepito, mentions a competitor of his forest stall that had been there before him. And remember when I was talking about lore in Roadhouse where they all know one another, all the oh, monsters yeah. know it's the same thing so, here. So, yeah. All these, all these obtainers worldly, of rare antiquities, these, yep. you know, I guess you could call them whatever. Um they're all part of the archaeologists. They society. know one, yeah. They yeah. know one another. So he knew Forrestal who had been there before him. Belloc knows that Indiana Jones is there. 
And of course, then just waits for Indiana Jones to do all the dirty work, takes the idol from him. And it's the classic moment where Indy says to Belloc, if only the Havitos knew you like I do, Belloc. He said, yeah, it's too bad. If only you spoke Hovitos. Yep. Then, you know, Belloc turns his head and Indiana Jones takes off and it just leads into the, then the ultimate chase across the freaking fields where you've got a hundred natives, Hovitos chasing him. And it's just, brilliant. you see the smoke, like the dust and dirt coming off of oh, his yeah. leather jacket as he comes over the hill and he's running towards the river and he's being chased by all of these Hovitos. Whom, by the way, were actual Hawaiian natives because that was shot in Kauai and Hawaii. And they used a lot of surfers, like an actual natives. uh, And and it's funny, too, because you got your first big laugh out of the film on that scene, too, where he's running to the plane. He's he's telling Jock to start the plane, start the plane. Right. And Jock just looks and he just sees Indiana running over the hill. Like, what's what's the big deal? What are you running for? And then all of a sudden you just see all the Hovitos coming over the hill also. And it's like, oh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and they shot that on both sides of the river, actually. One sh- with the shot of the natives chasing him over the hill toward the rivers on one side of it. And then the actual shot of him swinging on the vine is on the opposite side of that river when he, he jumps into the river and then goes to the the seaplane piloted by jock mm-hmm. and i think the plane and i forgot to even look for it this time isn't the isn't there a nod to star wars here isn't it 3po or something is the the oh, number yeah. on the plane yes i think that's right the plane's id or whatever on the side of it yeah i think there is a star wars easter egg on that I but here's and also one of the most triumphant music cues because i we have the classic moment of indiana jones climbs onto the seaplane just in time as the natives um uh, are you know trying to shoot blow darts at him from a distance, and Jock is piloting the seaplane off into the sunset with Indy in the back, and there happens to be like a giant boa constrictor in the plane. His, mm-hmm. This is Jock's pet snake named Reggie, and we learned that Indiana Jones hates snakes. But the, I always love that brief sequence when the seaplane takes off and it goes into the sunset because you hear the Raiders' march really kick in at that moment. Oh yeah. And that's the that's the first time you hear it. Mm-hmm. It's like ah, oh, yeah, there it is, flying to the sunset, right? Yes, and yes. like you said, that's the like the capper on a that could be a movie unto itself. Yeah, awesome. awesome. And then one other shot from this, I really appreciate it was when you first see the main hallway because I mean this temple is falling apart, decaying. I mean everything. At, at this point, it's just a mess. Indy looks like a mess. Mm-hmm. Cobwebs galore. And then you just have this beautiful, pristine fertility idol, gold, <laughs> just sitting there. Like, that's the only nice, clean thing in the whole opening 10 minutes of this film. It's like, wow, it just, it just stands out. It's just a Shimmering. It looks like they just made it yesterday. Right. It really exudes that, like, a sense of value. Like, it really yes. is pristine. Mm-hmm. And worth every ounce of gold that it's made up of, or precious metal, whatever it is. Yeah, great stuff, man. Yeah, the opening just just amazing. Could be the greatest short film of all time. And I'm going to say this repeatedly throughout this podcast, but these scenes still hold up. With I would put this up against any action scene from any action movie today. Oh yeah, of modern times. I mean, it's, it's still all... that good practical effects mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you can kind of tell some of it's in a soundstage, which I, I don't care, but it's so cool. I just, I still, yeah, just talking about, it, I just remember all the, all the reactions of the people in the theater. And yeah. And just before, like you meant, throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. When he's got to cross the chasm, he has to try to jump it because Zepito took the whip. Yep. And Harrison Ford, who does this, here's what, with Harrison Ford, I'm going to say this right now. What he, I think he does the best as an action star is high intensity. He does high intensity action better than any other actor, like movie star, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. He owns that because when it comes time to to get into the, like he's got to get it up for the scene, for the action, like high, he goes full intensity. You see it in his face and you know it's going to be high octane. And so he's got to make the jump over the chasm and then he grabs onto that vine and then the vine <laughs> starts pulling out to the ground and he's just barely getting up and over the edge. He's just got this look on his face of exasperation, but also just like in the moment, you feel it. You feel what he's feeling. And I see that in every action movie that he's in. Yeah. Even the way he delivers the lines about Forrester, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not one of those, hey, audience, by the way, there's this character Forrester and I need to tell you about him. He's just barely getting this information out because he's like, I'm so focused on trying to get through this temple. I'll just tell you this, Cepito, just to tell you this. Right. Yeah, it's not a, it's not like a uh, information dump. It kind of some, it works so much into the story and, and into his character. There's yeah. not a lot. There's really not a lot of dialogue going on in that first opening. No, scene no. Either. But you're learning everything you need to know about this character. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Well, speaking of exposition dumps, that leads right into my next favorite scene, Bill Band, and that is what I'm calling the lecture hall scene. Ah, yes. So I love this scene more and more as I watch this film. Now, at this point in the story, we understand who our protagonist is. We know who our antagonist is. And that being Indiana Jones and Belloc. But now we see Indiana Jones kind of like in, at, at his day job. He was at the university. He's the professor of archaeology and he's teaching his class. And who steps into class to make a little visit but Dr. Marcus Brody? And Brody says, Hey, there's some guys here from Army Intelligence who would like to talk to you. And I love this because there's a little Han Solo that comes out here where he's like, Why would I want to talk to them? Like, you know, and he's like, Well, you just need to hear him out. So the following scene is you have Harrison for Indiana Jones and, and Brody go into this giant lecture hall and they're sitting, they walk up onto it. Like basically it's the platform where the podium would be, where the, uh, the speaker would be talking to, to the students, but there's a big chalkboard and they're sitting at a table are the two top men uh, from the army intelligence. Yep. And they lay out the plot. Of this movie. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's great. Uh, we understand that uh, Indiana Jones's old mentor, Abner Ravenwood, has been working with the Nazis to because the Nazis have come across the city of Tanis, which is just outside of Cairo, Egypt. And the city of Tanis may uh, be the resting place of the lost Ark of the Covenant. And 
obviously Indiana Jones and Brody are just like blown away that this is actually happening. The Nazis found the city of Tannis. Like this is, this is real. This is history. This is happening. How, what? And my old mentor is assisting them somehow. And why? And we understand that there is a, a staff involved, like an actual stick, like a staff. With well, we wouldn't a say he's a, and, well, we wouldn't say he's assisting. I think the, the Germans know that he's like the foremost authority on it and they need to find. Well, that's right. The, the army intelligence guys are kind of like under the assumption that right. Raven oh, the assumption but, is correct, but Indiana, Indiana and Brody make it clear that there's no way Ravenwood would be assisting them that he must be. The only reason he's there is because the Nazis knew he was, like you said, the expert on these, the sort of these antiquities or the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And it's just a great exploit because you understand what the army guys are after. They understand that Hitler and the Nazis want to get the Ark of the Covenant because they feel that, uh, well, we are, we are about to learn in the scene that, they think if they have the Ark of the Covenant, it will make their army invincible. But for Indiana Jones and Brody, it's about the magnitude of this artifact. It's the Ark of the Covenant, what that means, the weight that it holds in just history, in biblical history, in the world's history, in relation to in everything that it means for all followers of things, you know, biblical, you know, and the power of God and things like, so carries a lot of weight, but within the scene, you get to see Indiana Jones get excited about this. He's like, this is, this is everything he could ever hope for as an archeologist or, you know, or, and also an expert of the occult. So he has to explain to the army intelligence officers what this means. And he gives a whole background, like a history lesson to these guys. And he gets to the chalkboard and he does the drawing. And he says, well, this is the story. Moses had the Ten Commandments and the tablets were broken up and they were put in the Ark of the Covenant and they were taken to Jerusalem. But then uh, Pharaoh came along supposedly and moved the covenant to the city of Tanis outside of Cairo. And now that rests in a place called the Well of the Souls. And in order to find the well of the souls, you have to go to a map room and that's where you put the staff and you have a headpiece on top of the staff and you put it and that gives you the location of the well of the souls. And you get all this information yeah. in this five minute scene. And these army intelligence guys are like all like wide eyed and like what? And it's just it's great stuff because uh, you there's a moment within the scene where Brody actually smiles because he's just watching Indiana Jones do his thing. And he knows, here's another funny thing in the scenes that Indiana Jones talks, uh, mentions, says the word obsession two or three times. Yep. He says that Raven, like the Ark was Ravenwood's kind of his obsession. He alludes to that. And there's some, there's another in different context where he uses the word obsession, but we see that actually Indiana Jones has a bit of an obsession. And he gets, he has this like childlike giddiness about him when he gets into explaining the whole thing. His passion really shows through and you see Brody kind of leaning back, smiling, watching and witnessing as Indiana Jones is really in his element. Oh yeah. And that's why I love this scene. Not only because it gives us a little historical background, but you've got William's score in the background too, when they start explaining it and it alludes to this mystery 
and this uh, elusive sort of uh, power that has also a dark element. And here's something too, is that when the army intelligence guys are like, well, what does this arc look like? Do you have a picture of it? And Indiana Jones goes over to a giant textbook on the table, which is like, I don't know if it's a Bible or an old, but it's clearly an old school text, opens it up, goes to a page where there's a picture, an actual illustration of the Ark of the Covenant being held by, I'm assuming, the Hebrews. And the covenant is open. You see like these lightning bolts shooting out of it. And the army intelligence guys are like, what is that? And Indiana Jones is like, I, I don't know. It's supposed to be like the power of God or something. And again, more character development within the scene, because we understand how Indiana Jones is more excited about the find and the artifact itself and what it represents, but doesn't, isn't a true believer in what the artifact may be capable of or the power it may possess. So there's a lot of different elements going on in this scene. I love it. It's fun to watch it unfold. Yeah, it's a very good scene, too, because it really is a 180 of what we just saw before, where we see Indiana Jones, the adventurer, right. and his fedora, and his bullwhip, and what he goes through outside of the university. And then he's at the university. He's got a suit on. He's got his little great point, tie, yeah. And um, students adore him. And now he's being asked to speak on a, a subject that not very many people know about and this is his wheelhouse and this is and he's literally taking these guys to school so he's in professor mode full on and there's that great line he actually says you guys ever go to sunday school like this is his territory yeah because army intelligence is totally thinking one thing and uh dr jones is like no 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 this is what it is this is what you know ravenwood has nothing to do ravenwood has the clues or the the answers to the questions that the nazis need in order to go through with this trying to find the ark so he's not working with them he just knows so much about the ark that he probably has what the nazis want and he's going to be the next step on their task list in order to obtain what they're looking for so yeah it's right. it's, it's, a, it's a it's a pretty cool scene because it's really the last time you see indiana jones as the straight-laced professor we learned a couple other things too, real quick, is that Indy had a falling out with Abner Ravenwood, his former mentor, for some reason. And we learned that the Nazis want the Ark of the Covenant because they think it will give them invincibility as an army. So, I mean, the, now the race is on. It's like we've, we, uh, our heroes need to get to the Ark before the Nazis do. Mm-hmm. That's it. We're off. Like, that's pretty much the inciting moment. Yeah, because it really is the unknown. You know, the art could really do nothing, but in the back of your mind, it's like maybe it could do something. So you better get to this first. That's all. That's all we need. This would, this could turn the tide for World War Two. So right, because even if the arc itself didn't hold this mystical, otherworldly higher power of some kind, it is about what it represents. Correct. It's an important piece in history, yes. Right, and they could would gain more follow uh, of a following. They would mm-hmm. probably get numerous followers just because they held that yeah. uh, piece of history. Love that scene. Well, yeah, we're almost jumping scene for scene because my next favorite scene is the bar fight. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. So as we mentioned before, Army Intelligence has hired Indiana Jones to try to procure the Ark of the Covenant. And his first step is to go find Abner 
and get the headpiece for the staff of Ra. So he has to fly all the way out to Nepal, where he comes across uh, Abner's daughter, who is played by Karen Allen. It's Marion. And of course, they have not seen each other in 10 years. And you kind of find out briefly that they did have a past and it did not end very well, to say the least. Right. And Indy's offering Marion $3,000. Well, it'd be $5,000 total just for the headpiece. And he's not explaining to her why he needs it. He just wants it. He's going to give her $5,000. And we find out that she does have it in her possession, but for some reason she doesn't want to give it to him. Right. She, she wants to make him suffer a little bit. Just Absolutely. So she's like, come back tomorrow. And he's like, okay. And he gives her the $3,000 and walks out the door. Well, of course, as we found out, the Nazis are also looking for this and they figured out also that, Marion probably has this piece also, and they literally mm-hmm. show up like minutes after Indy leaves and ask the same questions for the piece. And the thing about Marion is she's not your typical damsel in distress. She's a tough girl. She can hold oh, her yeah. own. She's feisty. Yeah, she, oh, yeah. That's a good word for it. Yes. She's definitely she, feisty. But, but she's also tough as nails. I mean, she's been hardened. She's, oh, yeah. she, she's a bar owner in the middle of Nepal. Yep, covered like the snow in mountains, and that she's existing and thriving in that atmosphere. So mm-hmm. she's tough. Um, but unfortunately for Marion, it's not one person that's that's shown up. There's about six of them, and of course they can easily overtake her. And now they're going to torture her to figure out where this medallion is. Right. And luckily, Indiana swings back around, and all hell breaks loose. So awesome. And I freaking love just, I think the sound design, and this is why I got an Oscar. I just love it. The punches, the gunshots, the action itself. I mean, growing up as a kid, every time you did punches from then on out, it was. Oh, yeah. It was just awesome. The, the, the sound, yeah. yeah. And just the guns were so goddamn loud. It was oh, just yeah. great. So it's it's literally a firefight in a fire because now the bar has been set on fire and he's trying to take out these the Nazis, the Nazi henchmen, and the head guy Tolt. Is it Tolt? Am I saying that? Uh, right? Tote, yes. Tote, yes, Tote. Who's the the head who brought all these people in to get the medallion? Yeah, he's like a member of the Gestapo, played by yep. Ronald Lacey. Yeah, he's great. Creepy get creepy look, weird looking guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um Indy's killed a couple of the guys and then my fa- one of my favorite lines is just whiskey i love That's that iconic yeah it's just a wonderful moment yeah so in, yeah indy's like in a fist fight with one of the with the henchmen and the henchman overpowers him and basically throws him on the bar and to- he lights the bar on fire and it's just like the spiraling flame that's going to go at indy and he just looks over at marion who's kind of hiding behind the bar at this point just whiskey and she gives him the bottle and he uses it to smash the henchman's head just to get up in time and then kills him. Right. And then we see that Tope finds the um, headpiece and goes to grab it. But because it's been sitting in the flame, literally burns into his hand. Right. He runs out. So then that just leaves Indy and Marion in what's left her, her burning bar and they get out in time. And then Marion's like, guess what? I'll be telling you around to the rest of this adventure until I get the rest of my money. Yeah, and uh, hands over the the headpiece for the staff. I'm your goddamn partner. In the middle of a blizzard. This is clearly another. You know, it's interesting because we're kind of going from. If I talked about the lecture hall scene, but we have 
tremendous action set pieces in this movie. And I, according to the research, you'll see that Lucas had a lot of these set pieces in mind, but they needed to tie them together. And that's where they, you know, they brought in Lawrence Kasdan to do some of that. The writing, who we know is wonderful. And I was just thinking about that because here we have, you know, we go from lecture hall, then we get uh, this one, another wonderfully brilliant, iconic action set piece. And this thing is shot so cool. Everything about it. We get a quick establishing shot of Marion's bar, which is, we find out uh, it, again in the research, is called The Raven. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming short for Ravenwood. But it's a great location. It's remote. So now we're already like, okay, that's an adventure unto itself. How the hell do you even get to this place? But Indy finds her. And clearly a history between them has established, like you mentioned, they had a, some sort of relationship. And she was, she's tossed, she says, I was a child and he had broken her heart and destroyed her life. So it must have been quite a tumultuous relationship. She was clearly underage. And he, we don't know exactly how far things had gone, but maybe she, I guess, knew what she was getting into, according to Indy. But I want to say something about that because a lot of yeah. people are always like, they're always harping oh, on that. Yeah. Right. But just because she says she's a child doesn't have to mean she was literally a child. I mean, she could have oh, been no. 18 years old, but emotionally, I was yeah, not. Yeah. No, but I know, but a lot of people harp on that, like, oh, and she said she was a child. She was like underage and and Indy was, you know. Was I always like, took it as more of a maturity thing. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Not some necessarily take age. It, yeah. But yeah, some people do take it literal, which I'm always like, eh. Right. I, I listened I to another podcast right. where they were really breaking down the actual age and what's, you know, this, that, getting very technical about it. But, but we never, yeah, we never know. I think I think in the in the book adaptation, I think it did say she was 16, mm-hmm. which would make her. But there's no proof of that. That's just someone writing something. And we don't know exactly how intimate they had gotten. And, and you just if you, yeah. uh, you, we don't need to get into the sort of details of it. We just understand that she was young. Right. She was a little bit more mature. And yeah, things didn't work out. And it changed her her perspective on things at that age during her formative years. And then she's now here in this position and she holds a real resentment. against right. But yeah, when people always harp on that, I'm just like, it never says like, she doesn't say like I was 16. No, she just said she was a child. So it just right. means she was young. That's it. Let it go. Doesn't so there, mean- yeah. Yeah. You know, there's some great dialogue in here and they, you know, we've got, some great uh, conflict between them and great chemistry at the same time. Yes. When she, first of all, great. Like you're talking about the, the sound effects, right? When she punches him right from the get. Oh yeah. What a great, like yep. <laughs> he's like, Oh, it's <laughs> such a great. And then of course, when she tries to hit him again and she, he grabs her hand and gives her the cash. Mm-hmm. So I, one of the reasons why I do love this scene is uh, because this is what they're just so smart making use of the space and everything in it. Yeah, because it's an enclosed space. It's not that big. There are so many different elements to this action set piece. It's a bar, but there's so many different devices within it because it starts, Indy's shooting his gun, but then he loses his gun. And then you've got 
there's punches thrown, obviously. Uh, there's a lot of physicality, but you've got Marion using like a, a log to hit uh, one of the thugs over the head. The whiskey scene, they're using the whiskey on the bar to light it on fire and it goes around the bar. And it's like, literally, these guys were sitting around the filmmakers sitting around, whether it be Spielberg, Lucas, Kazan, whomever, they're sitting there going, how do we take what we have in this room and make the coolest action possible and make it feel believable? Like this will lead to this and this will lead to that. And that's how we get to here. And this is how that this will end. And then and it completely flows and it makes sense. Yeah. There was an interview that I saw with Spielberg, how he was saying because of what happened with Jaws being over budget and over days and the same with Close Encounters. Like this was his most storyboard film because it was basically George's money Mm. that they were spending to make this. He was like, I can't let this run over budget. I can't let this run over time. Right. So they storyboard the shit out of it. So they really yeah, knew when sense. they got there what the hell they were doing. It's totally planned out and choreographed. So there's that. And also just from, again, filmmaking standpoint, when you're talking about not just set design, not, you know, God, this bar feels lived in. I mean, we had opened this whole thing. You know, there was these guys, they were going back and forth, taking shots, which is, again, another iconic scene with yeah. Marion drinking this other guy under the table. But uh, going into this particular scene, the use of shadows and lighting is, you get the iconic silhouette, again, of Indiana Jones with the fedora. When he walks into the bar for the first time and you see his shadow cast against the wall, you're like, does it get any better than that? I want that poster. Yes, please. That image is forever imprinted on my mind. There's great use of lighting when... He actually leaves the bar for the first time and the door closes behind him and he turns around and it's perfectly framed. So his eye is going right through the, the lattice work of the door. Mm-hmm. You see how they do like, the shadows and the lighting, like in Spielberg, just, I mean, he's no, I mean, he's a master when it comes to this stuff with the lighting and cinematography. There's a brief, I'm going to go off on a brief tangent, but our friends, Chris and Pat worked with Spielberg on a, on a brief. It was a, I think it was it was for they were giving a lifetime achievement award. I don't know if it was American Cinematheque, but they were giving an award to somebody, and he was giving a brief video tribute, uh, testimonial to this person's work. And Pat and Chris had set up kind of the room for Spielberg to literally sit down and just talk on video, like talking on camera. And Spielberg walked in. I guess was super. He was great. It was really nice. But he immediately within ten re-lit seconds re- relit it. Yeah, you remember that story? Yep, that was hilarious. It was like, let's just move this here. We're going to do that here real quick and, and do that. And then Pat and Chris were like, uh, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And we're not, you do your thing. And he was right. Like he just like, that's yep. who, oh, yeah. Uh, great stuff. So you see a master at work. Again, the shadows, the lights, the sound design, the choreography of the physicality. No, and then the great fake out at the end too, where... Indy thinks he disposes of all the henchmen. And then the right. one that Marion knocks out is about to shoot him. I love it. And yeah. You hear you the hear gunshot. gunshot and Indy reacts as if he got hit and he didn't. And then right. you realize the henchman gets killed. Right. Marion shoots him. That was great too. Cause that was one of those. Whoa, what the hell happened? And then, yeah, you just look, slowly see the blood just pouring out of the guy's head. And I was like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Can't get enough. Great scene. Uh, I'm going to actually take it. I'm going to speak of a couple moments that go ahead. 
So I'm going to take it back a scene or two because uh, there's a great scene where uh, you had alluded to it much earlier. And Marcus Brody comes over to Indy's place. Brody comes over to Indy's place to let him know that, well, basically he's got the gig, meaning the army intelligence, the U.S. government wants Indy to take the case to go after the lost Ark of the Covenant to lead the expedition. And basically what starts off as kind of a solo expedition, but he's taking over. So what's fun is that Brody goes over to his place and we get to see Indiana Jones kind of like his little abode, his homestead. Here's a little behind the scenes too, is originally because we see India and he's kind of walking around in his robe. He's quite comfortable. Yep. Supposedly the backstory here is, or behind the scenes is that he has a woman in the other room because he's supposed to be, you know, one of the iterations here of his characters that he's supposed to be quite the ladies man, but they didn't want him to come off a little bit too much of a ladies man. We don't get to see the lady in the other room. So uh, that's why he's walking around in his robe. Brody comes over Indiana Jones is elated. But the reason why I love this scene is because it adds a little gravitas to the story. And this is something where a lot of action adventure tales might not have this type of gravitas because we know the adventure that he's about to embark upon, but there is another element of it. It's not just a historical fact or uh, artifact, I should say, that he's going after trying to uh, retrieve. But the artifact itself may have, like we've said, represents something else, a mystical power, a religious significance, and Brody touches upon it uh, because we see Indiana, he's packing his suitcase. He throws his leather jacket in there, uh, his bullwhip, and he has a moment of seriousness and he says to Brody, he says, do you think Marion will be with him? Meaning, will Marion Ravenwood be with her father, Abner Ravenwood? And Brody says, well, she's the least of your worries at the moment. And Indiana replies, well, what do you mean by that? And this is one of my favorite lines is Brody says, well, I mean that for nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the lost ark. It's not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've gone after before. And this camera slowly moves in on Brody as he's saying those lines and Williams's score is kind of eerie in the background. And you're like, Oh shit, there's something else at work here. This could be really dangerous. And now the stakes go up and the risk is higher. And that's what I love about that scene. It gives me chills every time. And it's a great because Indiana, of course, doesn't believe in that. He shrugs it off. He's like, you sound like my mom. And, and uh, well, and besides you know how careful I am as he tosses his pistol into the suitcase, you know, it's great. I love that. And so I love that moment. And then I'm going to jump ahead after the Raven bar sequence in Nepal, when they get to Cairo and they meet up with Salah, John Rice Davies, Salah, Indy. Oh, that's good. That's pretty good. Can't get enough of that guy, man. Yep. Love him. Uh, also in the Lord of the Rings trilogy is wonderful. Yes. Uh, so, but here, Sala sits down with Indy. It's in the introductory scene of Sala with Sala and says, I don't know about this. Like going after the Ark, it's always been surrounded by death. They make it a point to add this element in there of it, it just raises the stakes. 
you know, we've got obstacles, we've got problems, we've got conflicts, we've got action, we've set pieces, there's danger everywhere. But then even beyond that, there's something that we don't understand yet. There is either a higher power at work, but it is beyond us. And that is a fear of the unknown now that has been put into our minds and our place. And I think that is brilliant in this movie. That gets me and takes it to another level. I love those moments. Just want to call those out. Because in a way, it's almost like you should really just leave it alone. It's gone for a reason. It's not like some sunken treasure in the ocean. It's God wiped out Tannis because he doesn't want the Ark to be found. And now you're messing with God. Right. And everything, like, again, the music cues and... It's the credits, the actors saying those lines. They add a little of that, uh, the seriousness of it. And you're like, oh, what is there some, there's something more going on here. The mystery, which I brought up earlier. I love that. All right. I'm going to jump to my favorite scene because I know we could talk about literally every scene of this. No question. Movie, but I was trying to keep myself limited to three. And mine is the chase. So we're we're jumping the way desert ahead. chase. Oh yeah, I freaking love that the truck chase, the truck chase, the horse and truck chase. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're jumping ahead, jumping ahead. So basically, uh, we've gotten to the point where Indy has found the ark. Um, he has procured it for about two seconds, and oh god, who steps in? Belloc. Belloc has taken away from him. They're going to load it on the plane. Then there's a big fight in the plane. And he blows up the plane. And now they decide that they're going to, the Nazis are going to transport the Ark by truck to take it to a boat to get it out of here to, I guess, look at the Ark first before they take it to the Fuhrer so he can do what he wants with it. And it starts off great because in the beginning, once they, once he realizes that the Ark. Truck? What truck? <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Go for it. Yeah, and he's like, "Well, what you know? What's your plan?" And he basically just says, "I just, I just make it up as I go along." Yeah, I which don't is know. just great because making this up as I go. Yeah, which I wrote, is great. I had to write it down. It's one of my. It's up there in my top favorite lines in this movie. That's one that, of my, as a kid, that was one of my favorite lines as a kid. Yeah, because that myself. really embodies who Indy is. Like he kind of has a plan, but he doesn't really have a plan. He doesn't have time to think about it. He's gonna no. go. That's action for you, right there. Yeah, he's like, I just know I got to get the arc. I don't know. Or, I'm thinking, I'm making this up as I go. Like, I got to go. I don't know what it's like. Just, I know I need to get it. Mm-hmm. Just, I'll figure this out on the way. And it's funny because there is um, in the book adaption of it where Indy comes across some horses. And I think it's like there's like a, a black horse, a brown horse, or whatever. And he tries to get on one of the horses and the horse kicks him. And then when he finds the white horse, the white horse lets him on. Mm. Gets on top of him. So that's why, of course, you know, the hero's got to ride off on the white horse. Right. So there you go. So, and he's using a horse now to chase down the truck and oh, just the music. It's my favorite piece of music. I'm trying not to talk about too much. So I know we will look up the track. I was going to bring it up later. It's called, it's called the desert chase on the soundtrack. It's amazing. It's a great, it's a great March. Yeah. I'll do a little story after that. So then Indy cuts them off by going, basically going over the mountains while they're taking the road. And then cuts down with the horse and jumps on the truck with the arc on it. And of course, there's a jeep and a motorcycle with a 
The sidecar, yeah. The sidecar, yeah. So the sidecar. So they're surrounding the truck to try to, you know, keep people away. And Indy takes control of the truck right away, gets the other car and the motorcycle to veer off the road. And then all that's left is the front car, which has um, Belloc in it with uh, some of the, the German officers. And he's going to take them out, too. So then he's now in sole possession of the Ark. But, of course, there are a bunch of Nazi soldiers literally in the back of the truck with the right. Ark. And they have the scene where they crawl out through the sides and are going to try to surprise Indy and take the truck back over. But because of the rearview mirrors, Indy's able to stop them. And he pushed, he brushed them, literally like drives into the trees and stuff like that, knocks them off. And then he misses one who shoots Indy in the arm. Oh, yeah. So now, so now he's wounded. He's been shot. Yeah. Yeah. Great. There's just that, that great scene where he, sh- like, he shoots him and then Indy kicks the door. And that guy swings out on the door and the door starts closing again. And he just kicks it out again. Like two, he kicks it so violently, he literally kicks the door off the car. And then that guy rolls off. And then I guess probably like the commander of the Germans that's watching the truck. He's smart enough to go over the top of the truck, surprise right. Indy. And then there says that great scene where they literally have a fight in the front of the truck. Oh, yeah. And the German throws Indy out through the windshield. He throws him through the fucking windshield. Yep. Onto, and then he's hanging on for dear life off the front grating of the truck. So then he's hanging on. He's literally has the tire in between his legs and he doesn't know what to do. And then, of course, the forward car is like, come, just, let's just smash him. Just drive the truck right into the back of his car and we'll just we'll just crush him. And of course, Indy finds out what there's what they're going to do. And then he literally slides underneath the truck. It's still a kick ass stunt. It's oh, yeah. They speed up the film slightly, but it's still kick ass. Somebody's doing that. And I remember as a kid watching the uh, PBS documentary on that. And what they did was they literally like dug a trench. Right. Underneath. You, yeah, you can see it. Yeah, you, you can, can definitely it. could see it. Yeah. If you're looking for it. Yeah. That's the thing. If you're looking for it, you, then you notice it. And so that's how he's able to get underneath the truck, then uses his whip. He somehow like hooks it into the truck. Or the yeah, handle. he anchors it somehow. He, yeah. yeah, he wedges it in. Yeah, that's the, what he does. That's the best way. He wedges it in there. Right. And then it shoots him out the back. Now he's being drugged almost. Yeah, he is being drugged behind the truck. Yeah, yeah. Climbs back Brutal. on the back and then basically does the same thing to the officer. The officer right. did to him where he sneaks back into the front, kicks the crap out of him, throws him through the front windshield. Right. And the officer doesn't have as good of a fate. He literally gets run over by the truck. Then Indy overtakes the front car. And then somehow all the Egyptians are in on this plot because then they hide the truck and Indy's now in possession of the Ark. But he makes it He makes it to Omar's garage. Yeah. Which is one of the things I picked up on on this viewing I never picked up on before is that he has a line earlier where he says to Salah and uh, Mary, he's like, after he says, I got to get that truck. And they're like, what are you going to do? And he says, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. He said, meet me at Omar's. He says that. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, what? And who's Omar? And what? And then when they he drives the truck at the end of the that huge set piece, he, and the doors close and all the Egyptians camouflage him, basically. Yeah. It says Omar's garage. And like, oh, they know who the local mechanic is. It's Omar. Yeah. <laughs> He'll take care of him. He'll hide him. Oh, man. That song is stuck in my head. 
I have to say one of my biggest thrills is every year Jason and I usually go and Hollywood Bowl, you got it. Williams, every Labor Day weekend does three shows. I think this last year was the 10th time I've gotten to see him. And one of the years he did that scene at the bowl where they they showed the footage of it and then they played that the desert chase live and incredible uh, loved it just just incredible loved it i love that yeah just that dun 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 right yeah it builds it gets faster and faster the pace yeah yeah absolutely outside of the theme the march that is my favorite piece of music in that movie it's absolutely brilliant and you would think it's such common sense when the the action scene picks up its pace the music picks up the pace but it feels like so what which is drive they're both driving the scene the music john williams score is a character in fact, like it is not just there for i mean it is supporting the scene but it's part of it like it's just getting your adrenaline pumping yeah you're like yeah let's go when you hear that music you're like indy let's do this man you got this yeah and it just when the stakes get higher and higher and the scene just keeps building and building because you you just went through it step by step where it's like holy shit now he just got shot in the arm now he's on the front now he's under the truck now he's dragging behind the truck now he's back on the truck and it all started. He was on a horse and he's going out, you know, it's like, whoa, I love the, the fact that he actually gets shot in the arm. And then when that, uh, that soldier, get, the Nazi gets into the car, he punches him in his shot arm in his wounded arm, like few, like a handful of times, like few times. Yeah. And he, he just got his ass, ass kicked. kicked. He, and he got his ass kicked 20 minutes earlier fighting the mechanic of the plane. Oh, and then yeah. he's got to go through all this too. So you're just like, holy crap, how is this guy even functioning? It's great because then that's, again, uh, where the suspension of dis- disbelief is really in place for me because there's the relatable everyman aspect of Indiana Jones as well. Mm-hmm. He's getting his ass kicked. Right. And Harrison Ford in this movie almost... And I say only because I don't want to I don't want to piss anybody off here, but it almost rivals Bruce Willis as like a, the everman who just got his ass kicked. Right. Kind of guy like he plays beat up really well. <laughs> yeah, kidding. because there is a scene later on where you see. Right. Oh, I'll what get his yeah, to him. All absolutely. Right, but uh, yeah, I so it's a it's just an incredible action scene with some wonderful stunt work, wonderful editing, more sound design stuff. But the editing is, it's great, but you buy, it's gritty, man. And it's real. It's actually, they're doing that shit. There's no CG. Nope. This is all practical stuff. There's some camera tricks that are, st- but those are still practical. Mm-hmm. There, we're not dealing with a lot of CG here. Yeah. The, yeah. I think it. the only like effect effect is when the one Jeep goes off literally the side of the cliff. Oh, right. Yeah. That's it. All right. Great, great stuff. The desert chase. Here's another one of my favorite scenes. I'm just calling it Belloc and Indy at the bar. I love this scene. I've always loved this scene. Can't get enough. It's a two shot. Indy has just lost Marion, or at least he thinks he has. He's got some booze in him. He's a little loose. He goes looking for Belloc, finds Belloc in the bar, surrounded by 
numerous Egyptian locals. And he sits at the, uh, at the bar at the table and it's just a two shot and you have Harrison Ford in the foreground out of focus. And for most of the scene, at least the first like half to three quarters of it, Belloc is in the background, but he's in focus and he's doing most of the talking and Belloc's explaining to Indy how they are the same. It's just that if Indy, if you give Indy a shove, he would be pushed out of the light and come to the dark side, basically (laughs) where Belloc is. And I love that Indy's not, he can't even look at him. Doesn't even look at him. The framing is so specific. It's awesome. And Indy is drunk and he's moving his lips like he's over enunciating because he's a little drunk mm-hmm. and it's dramatic and a little melodramatic. And then Belloc saying, look, I could bury this watch and in a thousand years, it would be priceless. You know, if somebody found it and the, the great line when Belloc says to, says, Jones, do you realize what the arc is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. And it's within my reach. And Indiana replies, you want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. I've got nothing better to do. And he pushes the table away, pushes himself away from the table, goes for his gun. And you realize all the Egyptian guys surrounding him are armed with automatic weapons and they point their guns at him. And at the last second, all these children run in to, and they start going, Indy, Indy, Indy. And then Belloc stands up and says, next time it will take more than children to save you. Yeah, we find out what Sal is doing with all his free time. Jesus, yeah, right. man. We still got like 15 <laughs> kids. And it's great because then he leaves. And this is where I say all the Egyptian extras, all the Egyptians love Indy because all the Egyptians put their guns down basically to their sides and they're all like cheering him out. They're all like, oh, yeah, laughing. Yeah. <laughs> we were about to shoot you two seconds yep. ago. But now we think this is a really quite a, a, a funny scene. Yep. This is pretty light. But it's funny because I caught this line this time around where Sala says, Basically, the kids have just basically saved Indy's ass. Not basically, they have saved Indy's ass. And Sala says, better than the U- uh, U.S. Marines, huh? Yeah. Something to that effect. I'm like, oh, I never really caught that before. Like, yeah, I remember, yeah. The he Marines coming in. Yeah, he purposely sent them in because he knew they, they right. would not shoot the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, it's good shit. But I love that scene because of the, the framing and some of the, the and because of the dialogue. and. Uh, it's a radio for speaking to God. Love that line. Quick, I'm going to go through a quick, uh, the bad dates scene. Iconic. Oh, I yeah. realize, you know, that's the monkey is eating the poison date and dies and solace at the last second and snatches the bait, uh, the date out of midair, uh, thus saving Indy's life. Yep. Also Most evil monkey since outbreak. Right. And of course we know that in that scene, that's when they discover that the Nazis have been digging in the wrong place. That's a great scene. I'm just going through just highlights. Uh, speaking of chases, we skipped over the basket chase. I mean, yes, it's a it's a good scene, but you, like I said, we're going to talk about. We just it don't have scene. enough time, but we we yes. have to. We just got to mention the basket chase, which is great, and of course, indeed, indeed. Uh, of course, the also the. Uh, I what did she say? I'm an American. You can't. Oh do yes, this she does. Scene. Yeah, and. This whole scene, you know, ending with the most iconic thing, probably most memorable moment for many from Raiders of the Lost Ark is Indiana Jones not willing to fight the big swordsman uh, yes. swinging his, his giant sword. And he just pulls his gun and shoots him uh, instead. 
And we all know the kind of the famous story behind that is that basically everybody on this set working on this film outside of Steven Spielberg got sick. Yep. I don't know if it was dysentery or whatever. Dysentery. Yes, it was. So the mythology here, the story is that uh, Harrison Ford wasn't quite feeling up to the, uh, the fight sequence here with the big bad in the basket chase and uh, the swinging swordsman. So he's like, well, why don't I just shoot him? (laughs) Yeah. Let's try that. That's awesome. Yeah. And the story goes, yeah, that Spielberg was surviving. He was eating canned SpaghettiOs. That's how he didn't get sick. Yeah. But we'll talk about the scene later because it actually falls in my complaint department. Right. Surprisingly. I I have, well, me too. I've got an issue too. Then uh, the map room, great sequence when Indy puts the staff of raw into the hole and the headpiece is screwed on and we get the location of the well of souls. Great John Williams music cue here. Uh, love the map room sequence. Just such a cool setting. Here's one of my favorite shots for me, the most iconic shot. And this, if I could choose to take a screenshot, a screen grab of this image and blow it up as my poster for Raiders Lost Ark, this would be it. Once India's located the location of the Well of the Souls, he then uh, basically recruits a bunch of the quote-unquote strongbacks, the other Egyptian workers, and goes with them and Salah to the Well of Souls. And the sun is setting, and you have the silhouette of all the workers. Oh, yeah. And you have Indiana Jones, and you see the wind is blowing, and he puts his fedora on his head, and you just see the silhouette of him standing at the top of the hill on top of the well of the souls as the sun is setting behind him. And they're that's, all singing, right? Yeah. You can yeah. hear them. Yeah. And that's, that's the image that I would have. I love, love, love that picture. Mm-hmm. That shot snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Another iconic shot is him up against the Cobra. Yeah. Just that, but I, you was just saying the line is iconic, but oh, yeah, yeah, that also absolutely asps. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. You go first. Go first. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. And you had mentioned the the flying wing, the the plane sequence. That action set piece is wonderful. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Pat Roach, who plays the the big the big heavy in that one. That uh, Indy has to go fisticuffs with. Oh Jesus! It is brutal. Talk about you get your plenty of the sound or uh, the punch sounds. Yes. You know. That's basically it. It's like it's like an elongated sound. It's not just it's uh, so you get a lot of that. And uh, that ends up uh, to be quite a bloody scene. Pat Roach, man, I think he actually plays the swordsman and this guy to and the guy during the plane sequence. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. he He has two parts in this. He plays two roles in this movie. And then Pat Roach would go on to be General Kale in Willow, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Pat Roach is he's a big dude. He's a big dude. All right. Yeah. But uh, I'll have to look and make sure because I I want to get that right, who he played in this movie. Yeah. Another quick moment right after that desert chase. Uh, now, Indy has gotten the shit kicked out of him, but he did get away with the truck and the Ark and Marion and Indy have boarded. It's called, I think, the Bantu Wind is what it's called. It's a boat. And... They are now going to go by boat, transport the Ark, hopefully back to the States. And Indy's getting, he's taking out a shirt. He's getting kind of, he's trying to get cleaned up. He's relaxing on the bed. Marion has her new dress on. She's looking at herself in the mirror. 
the mirror is like fogged up and she's trying to clean it off. Anyway, it's one of those rotating mirrors and she swings it around, whacking Indy in the face, basically in the chin. And it's one of those classic shots where Indy's already gotten the shit kicked out of him. And now Marion hits him in the head with the fucking mirror. Oh, right. In the and chin. you That's hear, a- yeah, in the chin. And you hear Indy just scream like, <sighs> and it cuts to a wide shot from the, of the ocean in the boat. And you yep. hear Indy yelling, from all the way out, like in the sea. Yeah, like he totally gave him away. Like, ah! and then it gets back to the sequence, and Marion's like, Did you say something? Uh, the only thing I don't like about that scene is that's probably where they made Mutt. So oh. <laughs> that's, that's always at the back of my mind now. I'm like, Ah, damn it, because of the scene, we've got Mutt. Oh, it's great. But yeah, that is where our opening quote comes from. Yes. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Just great. I mean, Indy is really, he's beat up. And I love Harrison Ford in this scene because he's just moaning and groaning. Every he, If you really watch it, like he, when he's trying to take his shirt off and then she tries to touch his leg, like everything about him is hurting. Every yeah. single part of his body is hurting. And you really see it. You feel it. Well, except for three, what, four parts? Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I always liked that. I thought that was kind of cool. So another moment is when uh, Indy, I'm just saying this real quick, Indy hopping onto the submarine. There's a great another. That's when the Indiana Jones march kicks in to, because he's gotten off the, he had to get off the ship and he's got to get onto the submarine because the Nazis showed up and now they have, they took the Ark away from uh, Indy and uh, they've gotten onto their submarine, this U-boat and Katanga, who is the captain of the Bantu wind. I want to get, make sure that's right. He needs his own movie. Oh, hell yeah. It is the Bantu wind. Yes. So Katanga is like, where's Indy? And one of the other crew members says, he's there. Indy's on top of the submarine. <laughs> he climbs onto the submarine. He's, he swam over to the sub, the U-boat, climbs on top, and he turns around and gives this great salute yes. to all the guys back on the Bantu wind as they're cheering. <laughs> And you just hear dun 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 dun, dun. and it's like ninety yeah. percent of that crew has no idea who the hell he is. No, but it's just great uh, because he he gives a full on full on salute, a really strong salute to the guys. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, no half ass salute right there. Uh, so I love that moment. Did you have any other moments or scenes you want to call out here? Because uh, I, I was going to tell one quick story in direct relation to that that actual moment. I have to say moment is the melting faces just because yeah yeah once I got absolutely the VHS copy of Raiders of the Lost Ark I don't know how many times I freeze frame that over and over and over again that and whiskey I think I played that over and over again and the melting faces just to see how that oh hell worked. yeah so, yeah, I got to get a shout out to that because I, I know as a kid when I first saw it, it freaked me out. But then I did a 180 and loved it. And just once I saw from the documentary how they did it, whereas one of them is just melting wax and the other one's kind of like a vacuum suction. Right. I still had to watch it. Yeah. Frame by frame. Oh, it's brutal. Or it's, the best you could on a, on a VHS tape. And it still is really creepy to watch. It, it's it's upsetting. That scene alone is why my kids have not watched it yet. Yeah, understandably. So I get it. Uh, there's many, many moments we've probably missed or glossed over. So we apologize. But 
you get it. Back to that brief scene where the crew members aboard the Bantu wind are looking to see what happened to Indy. And then uh, one of them says, oh, he's there. And Indiana Jones appears up on, t- on top of the uh, U-boat. Uh, there's a really fun, uh, this is a, a true story from my days at the University of Miami. And I'm going to call out Pat Duty for this story as well. Uh, we were working on, I believe, our thesis, a senior thesis film entitled Vitamin C, the motion picture. And we happened to be at the Biltmore Hotel. We weren't shooting or anything. It was an off day, but we were at the Biltmore Hotel. This is Pat Duty, myself, and I believe Bruce Nadeau may have been with us. And I'm not sure whom else was with us. And I apologize if I'm forgetting you. But the reason we were at the Biltmore Hotel, which is a very famous old hotel landmark um, in Miami, was because they were shooting a little film called The Specialist that day, starring Sylvester Stallone. And uh, we were on one of the balconies overlooking the shoot because obviously we couldn't be on set, but they were shooting on location there around the pool area uh, back at the Biltmore. And this particular scene, James Woods happened to be there and he was part of the scene. And so Pat and I and Bruce were watching like, this is cool. There's James Woods. Oh my God, it's James Woods. How cool is that? And Pat's like, Oh man, I would, we got to get him for our movie. We got to get him. We, I want him to do something for our movie. How awesome would that be to have a celebrity, like do a voiceover or be in our movie. And we're like, yeah, that would be cool. So we're watching, we're looking for Sylvester Stallone. I think we did get, he was there too. So we, I think we did see him, okay. but oh yeah, there, he was like working out in between shots. There was, they had a gym there. So he was kind of coming and going, but I know Eric Roberts is in that scene, but we definitely saw Sylvester Stallone and James Woods and Nado. that's Bruce and I were talking and then we're like, Hey, where, what happened to Pat? We're looking around. And then we look down we're like, he's there. <laughs> and there's <laughs> Pat duty. He walked right onto the set oh, and geez. walked right up to James Woods and started talking to him <laughs> and asked him, he's like, Hey, I know this is a long shot, but hey, man, I'm a you know film student at the University of Miami. Do you think you could do you know be in our movie? We just we just need you for a couple hours if you could do a voiceover. Just be we just and I guess James Woods was totally cool. He was like, man, I respect that. Like that's awesome. Thanks for asking. I appreciate you, man. But I'm under I'm a union member. I'm under contract with this movie. I can't uh, work on anything else at the moment. But thanks, but no thanks kind of things. I guess he was very polite about it. Yeah, that's good. It's, that was a nice blow off. But it was Pat Duty's Indiana Jones moment where yes. he needed to attain us a goal. He had to do something and he just all of a sudden disappeared and we were looking around and it was like Bruce and I were the crew members of the Bantu wind over looking over the edge going, he's there. That's or a there great he is, story. you know, That's kind a great of thing. Story. And there's duty like dun, 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 walking onto the set, talking to James Woods. I, I have to admit, I was so jealous. Well done, duty. Not surprised by that story. Hilarious. So I'm just, these are going to be the last quick uh, favorite moments. Just the, the entire finale with like, you talked about the melting faces, but the sound design in that entire finale. Yes. Well, the lightning coming out of the Ark of the Covenant and the music and the buildup. One of my favorite moments is when the lid has been blown off the Ark of the Covenant and we have a whole plume of like flame shooting up into the sky. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when the flame comes back down and retracts basically into the arc, the, the lid comes spinning downward. And then you just hear 
it's just such a cool sound effect where the lid just goes right back perfectly onto the arc. Love that. And then last final and extremely iconic shot oh, yeah. of the entire film is the warehouse of the hundreds of thousands of crates, which we are made to think that that may house God knows what, yeah. How many other historical artifacts of what significance? I hate to admit this for a brief second watching it. I almost wanted to watch the beginning of Crystal Skull again, just because supposedly it takes place back in that warehouse. Right. Just to see it. And then I thought better myself. So not to worry. Just stay away. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've been curious a couple of times. I've, I've revisited the film and it just, yeah, it's not, it takes me out of the, the world, to be honest. That's mm-hmm. the, that's a real problem I have with it. It just takes me out of it because there are things that I really, really do love about Temple of Doom and Last Crusade, absolutely. But watching Kingdom and the Crystal Skull, it is just, it's not the same universe to me. It's not the same world. Uh, I can't, no. I, I'm so, it's, it's just far removed. So I watch it and I'm like, oh, this isn't, this well, is like a, a an empty shell. Lucky for us, it's not an 80s film, so we never really have to right. talk about it. So <laughs> let's just keep going. Let's keep going. So any other moments or no. scenes? No, All right. I'm done. All right. So let's move on to music. We've touched on a little bit here and there. An amazing score by John Williams, who was nominated. He probably should have won. He probably lost to was it Chariots of Fire, probably. That's a great question. I should have looked that up. I don't yeah, know. I should, I should have too, but I'm assuming that's what he lost to. John Williams, one of the greats. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I mean, you already know what my favorite track is. It's the Desert Chase outside of the indie fanfare. What about for you, Jason? Is there another piece of music? You know, just uh, look up his uh, discography, if you will. But he's one of the best when it comes to the film scores and worked on almost all of Steven Spielberg's films, at least most of them, probably about 90% at this point. But anywho, this is a soundtrack that I grew up with that I listened to on vinyl repeatedly. I would hole up in my bedroom and listen to this music and uh, let my imagination go. It's just a wonderful soundtrack. So one of the things growing up too is it's always exciting for me when you'll listen to a score, but I watched the movie so many times and listened to every music cue uh, on repeat while watching the film that when it wasn't that particular piece of music, even if it was a small cue, wasn't on the actual soundtrack, I would be upset about it. I'd be like, oh, I love that little piece of music, like um, like the flight to Nepal or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Where I'm like, and... Then they would, when they would come out with these uh, extended versions uh, or editions and with previously unreleased tracks, I was always thrilled. And so you can now listen to like the extended version of the Raiders of the Lost Ark score. Uh, so the Raiders March, iconic. Uh, Marion's theme. Uh, also, if you want to just the greatest hits, go listen to the basket game, the map room, and uh, Desert Chase, of course, like we talked about, like Bill talked about. So. Yeah, and at the Hollywood Bowl, it's always a go-to that Williams will play the march. Right, he'll play like, Marion's theme is another one, but the march is march is play. I think every year I've been there, that's yeah. always a go-to. Star Wars main theme and Raiders; those two have been at every one. I think between, contest. I mean, if you were going to say what were John Williams' most iconic themes, 
Like Superman was a go-to there for a while, and then he hasn't played it the last couple of years, which has been you could really put it like the John Williams Mount Rushmore would be Star Wars, Jaws, Raiders Lost Ark, and then ET. And uh, well, Indiana Jones would be the four. Oh, right? Right, right, right. Star Wars, Jaws, Super. I'm sorry, wait. Sorry, did I say Indy twice? Hold on a second. Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, and Indiana Jones. Right. Those are my four. Okay. E.T. is it's tough because E.T. is close. Yeah, God. What would close I encounters is tough. Like, I mean, you could go down the list, but mm-hmm. I think I think the top four themes most identifiable or world renowned, recognizable, etc. Does that make sense? Would yeah. that be right? Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, Raiders. Some some people might swap out Superman and E.T. I I love Superman. And then some of a different generation might put Jurassic Park up there too. I was thinking that too, because I do love when he does Jurassic Park. Yeah, he'll play that a lot. But yeah, he's done that one in a while. But he always does the Star Wars main theme and he always does the Raiders March. And everything else is always different. Harry Potter is great. Yes, Harry Potter is a good one. I mean, there's, I mean, again, just go down the list and you, you quickly will be like, oh, yeah, if, if you don't recognize the name John Williams, then just you look at his score, you know, his IMDb, whatever it might be. Be like, oh, yeah, great thematic film music. One of my favorite John Williams stories is actually growing up, you know, Bill and I and a couple of our other friends have the tradition of seeing him at the Hollywood Bowl, as many others do here, especially in the Los Angeles area. It's a real privilege. Um uh, to have been part of that tradition and and uh, with my close friends and to see a real icon live perform in that particular setting under the stars. But outside of Chicago, there is another outdoor venue called Ravinia, which I was uh, able to see John Williams there a couple of times. And I was one time with Chris Valenziano and a couple were giving away their tickets, actually. And it was close to the front row. I think we were like in the eighth row. Uh, there's a there's a pavilion. So Ravinia is set up in a way where there is a main pavilion where obviously the orchestra, the stage is. And then there are the the rows of seats. But then beyond that, there's an, a huge, beautiful park and people will go and just get the park tickets and you will go with your picnic blanket and you would bring wine and cheese and snacks and basically have a picnic out in the garden. And they put speakers throughout the trees for like a mile on the way back into the park so you could sit all the way back there and listen to all of his film music you just wouldn't be able to see him or the orchestra but you could hear it and enjoy the live orchestration right Mm -hmm. uh but we chris and i were just walking along and a couple were like hey we got to give away our tickets you want these and chris i'll never forget it because chris and i looked at each other and went what you just you're gonna just give them to us can we give you some money you know and they're like no it's like we gotta we gotta go and uh, thank you. So our f- other friends, I think, that were with us had their little picnic or whatever out in the park. But we got to sit in the pavilion right up front. And w- there's John Williams and the orchestra. It's a beautiful summer night. And I'll never forget in particular when he played a track from JFK. And I want to say it was the track titles Arlington. And I remember being moved to tears. Mm-hmm. This is really special so yeah i always love when i get the hollywood bowl schedule piece in the mail just to see that he's going to be in there 
for that Labor Day weekend. And then, of course, about two hours later, you get the email from me. Right. Hey, mark, mark your calendar. Yeah. When do you want me to get tickets? Great times, man. All right. Uh, want to move on? Let's do it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, here we go. We're going to move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call this Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, you said you didn't have any Swiss cheese on this. I one, don't. Right? Uh, for most most part, the plot tracks for me. It tracks. Uh, I don't. I don't really. There's nothing that jumps out to me where I go, ah, this part of the story doesn't flow for me. But okay. so I'll I'll pass it over to you. All right. So I have one Swiss cheese, and it's. I used to let it go, but then watching it this time, I was like, no, I can't because. Of course, we we talked about there's a scene where India takes the ark, he puts it on the boat, the U-boat comes, they take it back, and then Indy jumps on the U-boat. Right. So when they did the Marvel comic adaption of this, because I used to remember, used to be at my local barber shop, so I would love to go to the barber because I would read the Indiana Jones comic all the time. So in the comic, they actually explain how Indy survives the U-boat, but... The problem is in the comic, he uses his whip to literally tie himself to the periscope, which is above water the whole time. So that's how he survives. He, he basically just tied himself to the periscope. So he fell asleep. He literally fell asleep tied to the periscope. And then there's a thought bubble like, I hope they never send this down or else I'm going to drown. Lower the periscope. What? Right. Crazy. But then when I was watching this, and I mentioned this in the beginning, the last 20 of the minutes of the movie, Indy does not have his fedora. He does not have his whip. Right. So he couldn't have done that. Yeah. He would succumb to the elements, hypothermia. Absolutely. And he would not survive that boat trip. He would be dead. There'd be no last 20 minutes of that movie. So that, that is a whole. They should have figured out a way to explain how the hell he survives that U-boat trip. Because right. The whip doesn't work because he doesn't have the whip. And I'd let it go all this time until I watched it this time. And that's when I realized, I'm like, he doesn't have his whip. How the hell did he stay on the boat? It doesn't make any sense. I put it in my complaints, but I guess it really is a whole. We just don't know. No. Because either we're to assume the U-boat never went beneath the surface and that he just stayed up top. How far away are they from the secret island? Yeah, we never know. You know, anyway. Or he actually boarded the U-boat. And how would he even do that without being discovered? Mm -hmm. Impossible. Like, did he sneak into some sort of secret compartment? It's just too extreme. Like, it's too... That's where probably the one where the suspension of disbelief just goes out the window where it's like, how is he... Like, great. You got you managed to swim from the Bantu wind over to the U-boat. Now, how are you going to get inside the U-boat? Or yeah. how are you going to survive outside of the U-boat if that's your plan? Like, it wasn't thought through. 
So, no. or, and it's not explained in the film. There's a couple of moments I feel, I think it, it, it is in the last 20 minutes where it kind of jumps and you're like, how did he get there? How's that even feasible mm-hmm. kind of thing without either being discovered or noticed, or it's a little too easy. It's almost like there's it's just jump cuts, you know, like it jumps, like we just have to go with it. Yeah. Somehow he figured it out. So good call. I think it's a great call. I agree a hundred percent. That, yeah, that was my only cheese. So we just move on to complaints. All right. All right. So my first complaint is our guy, Baranka, in the opening of this film, in the jungle. Baranka, by the way, also was the monkey man. He has a dual role in this movie. So we have Zapito or Zatipo as he's credited, but I'm just calling him Zapito this whole time. Zapito. Zapito. Zapito and Baranka are following Indiana Jones through the forest, through the jungle. And now we know that uh, Indy's looking at the map. He's putting it together and Baranka decides he's going to, he's going to double cross Indiana Jones. And he pulls his gun from the holster and cocks it ever so slowly and loudly, giving away his position. That always now still kind of like bugs me. I'm like, dude, if you're going to shoot this guy in the back, why are you cocking your gun first? Mm -hmm. Like you're making all this noise in the silent, like quiet jungle. You're trying. Yeah. I don't know. And he's just trying to get the map. Why don't you wait until Indy gets the idol, then shoot him? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So then in the same scene when they get into this wonderful setting of the the cave of the idol, the 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 booby trap that is triggered that is what I'm calling light sensitive. It's like got a you know how you have a like motion sensitive right. alarms. This booby trap is set off if you disturb the light that is surrounding it, like the sunlight, because Indiana Jones sticks his hand out into the sunlight and that sets off the booby trap, which is basically like a swinging door with spikes on it. And we see Forrestal is still attached to it, his bones and his decaying body. And then obviously Zepito succumbs to it and uh, is disgustingly, you know, stabbed. Impaled. Impaled. Thank you. So. My question is, though, how did you like, how do they rig that? Like, that's a pretty special. How do they how did they rig that booby trap to work in the first place? Yeah. And you're then second of all. Right and then second of all, what if it was dark outside? That's what I was thinking. That, that, thing, that thing goes <laughs> off every night. <laughs> like if you just could you just walk through then if it, it doesn't set like because there's no light and it doesn't get set off then at that point. Oh, so yeah, you, it, you've totally destroyed that I'm trap sorry. for me. You totally did. Because <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Because that's the first thing I was thinking. It's like, well, you should just go in the temple at night when the light's not there. Then you'll right. be fine. Yeah. <laughs> or even if you had a torch, like, and you were walking through the cave because you need light or a flashlight, like an artificial source of light, it shouldn't set off the, like, I, or maybe it would. I don't know. Maybe. Because I think. Because the dynamics is, is like, breaking the beam. Right. Sets it off. Right. So I'm trying to, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Damn it. Sorry. It's so cool though. I know. That booby trap is totally ruined though. I just want somebody to explain it to me. That's all. Yeah. We just ruined the booby trap for so many people. (laughs) I'm going to stick with the same scene. That's okay. uh, And go with replacing the idol with the bag of sand. This is tough. It's so awesome. Yes. I would just be like, I think you got to be pretty exact. Like with this. Yeah. You got to kind of know. Yeah. Indy's pretty good. Like he know, 
like do your research. I don't know. He knows a lot about these things. Would he, I don't know if he would know how heavy the maternity idol fertility idol, excuse me, is like exactly to like the ounce, but you, you can't just guesstimate. I don't think he just pulls a handful of sand out. Like he looks at it. It took me forever to figure out that's what he was doing was like, Oh, oh my yes. bag of sand is too, probably too heavy. I'm going to take a handful of sand out and now oh, I'm going to eyeball this. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be about equal and then be surprised when it's not, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. The chances of him getting that right are slim. It's, that's a little tough. It, it, I'm still going with it. It's just like, all right, that's a, that's a risk there you're taking. At the end of that scene, <laughs> where Indy gets away with with Jock on the plane, yeah, that plane only seated two people. Indy started with the whole crew. If they had successfully gotten the idol and walked out, how were how were all of them getting away? <laughs> wow, that's great, man! I never ever thought about that. Were they just gonna? Like right on the pontoons, like on the yeah, uh, exactly. See, you guys, strap themselves to the the wings of the the pontoon, the yeah. uh, seaplane. That's amazing. That's hilarious. So, do we think Indiana Jones was gonna just double, double cross, cross them, take yeah. them out, be like, "You're just extra weight." Well, he's kind of a mean guy. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about. I was like, "Wait a second, where's the great call?" Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what did they have? Maybe they. Had somewhere else to go in Peru. Maybe those Baranca and Cepito were going had somewhere else to go. I don't know. That's that's a really good call. And I love that was my uh, other nitpick here with that is that I'm calling the Javitos the stormtroopers of Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, Indy, Indy swings on the vine into the river, and all the Javitos line up along the the riverbed there and start blowing their blow darts and shooting or shooting their arrows. And they can't hit the broadside of a barn. I mean, there's that one <laughs> shot where there's literally like 600 arrows. You see them all like, flying. There's the no way anything could get by that. You would have to be a fly to somehow get through that. And I'm like, what's there's repelling so these arrow, all these arrows? It must be the water. The, the arrows are afraid of water. Yeah, he should have been hit with something. I know. It's great, though. Got to go with suspension of disbelief. Yes. Oh, here's a great one. I had to look this up, and I remember looking this up before. In the Nepal bar fight sequence. Okay. Because I got a Nepal complaint. Go ahead. Indiana Jones, we see him, he pulls out his revolver and starts firing. And then we see a couple of close-ups. It's very clear. He has a semi-automatic handgun. He's switching back and forth between guns. It's clear as day. Mm -hmm. And then... Much later in the film, when he's aboard the Bantu Wind with Katanga and Marion Ravenwood, and they have a little, little sweet, sexy time, sort of sleepy time, more, it seems, uh, in their little bunk area, he realizes the engines have stopped and he knows something's wrong. And then he pulls out a semi-automatic handgun. It's not his pistol, his, uh, his revolver. Right. And puts it in his pants. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So... Because you always see him with his holster and his revolver that he puts in his holster. It's like a six shooter. Right. Right. Well, according to the research, he just, they just say, oh, yeah, well, he's just has a backup gun. <laughs> That's it. Oh, yeah. Which we never really. But it's just never explained. No. And we never see him like 
pack that gun so easy just keep it in the in his belt like in the back of his pants the whole time i don't know but he has two different guns in the movie yeah that's a good question it's a, and you really do i mean you see it clearly in that bar sequence because he shoots with the revolver first and then you see him using the semi and you don't see him switch between the two right one shot he's got one gun the next time he's got a different gun you're like which why is why so there must have been something that was left on the cutting room floor regarding the weapons he's using. I know. Yeah. Cause I was thinking about that with the um, revolver. Cause like when he runs out of bullets, where the hell were the other bullets for him? To, he had to reload that at some point. Right. Cause he's shooting a lot. Yeah. That's a good question. Indianist mystery guns. Right. But yeah, speaking of Nepal, it's pretty cold up there. Yeah. And he's just wearing his leather jacket and that's about it. <laughs> right. Dude, you gotta be cold. You gotta pack appropriate, man. For this climate. Everybody else has got these heavy jackets and all this other stuff. I mean, these are people who live there. Are used to these layers on. And he just shows up with boots. this leather jacket and fedora. Uh, yeah, not cutting it. Really a man for all seasons. Yeah, uh, I mean, he wouldn't look as cool he, wearing a big fur coat or anything. Yeah. But yeah I was like, I'm like, wait, you're, you're leaving the bar in just your leather jacket and going to God knows where because there's nothing around. Bill, you didn't see the coat rack? At the at the bar before he went in, that's where he checked his giant roll coat and and uh, his snow pants. Oh, okay. I think that's in a deleted scene. Yeah, that's probably in the cutting room floor. Okay. Uh, that's great. It's so true, though. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, for two he seconds. just shows up with the leather. You're jacket. in the mountains, bro. And granted, and funny enough, I've I've worn that jacket. I had my replica jacket. My replica Indiana Jones jacket in zero degree weather in Chicago in snow and it was freezing. Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> okay, there you go. It doesn't I, doesn't work. Yeah. No, I, I, Mythbuster right there. I did there my own go. my own myth. Yeah, you look good. Oh yeah, it's but great. you're freezing your ass. Walking off. my little Shih Tzu dog Mopsy in the snow, freezing my ass off. But I'm like, I look like Indiana Jones. Jones. Yep, not at all. Let's cut to the basket chase. Go ahead. So we may have the same issue here, but for I'm just going to cut to the end of the basket chase. That's where my issue really lies with the, I guess, the basket switch. I, that's where I have an issue with. Oh, yeah. I never could figure out how they actually did that. Because we're led to believe you know, we watch Indy chasing down Marion, who's being carried in a basket. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. And... Uh, she gets, we think she gets loaded onto one of the Nazi trucks that also happens to have a shit ton of explosives in the back of it. Like it's a fireworks truck, basically. Yeah, they're get, they're pre- July. Yeah, right. They're prepping for uh, the Cairo Independence Day. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be a big party. And then Indy comes around the corner and he just shoots that truck to hell and the guys on board and the whole thing goes uh goes up in flames it gets blown up and we think marion is dead but then we learn later on that she was not in that truck she was not in that basket and the question is then what basket did they put on the truck why would they even put a basket on that truck if marion's not in it what was in that basket or did she get out of the basket before the basket was put on the truck did they take her out of the basket first then put the basket on the truck and if they did take her out of the basket first, then why still put the basket on the truck? And if she escaped from the basket and then they put the basket on the truck, wouldn't they 
realize that the basket was a shit ton lighter. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't, that moment doesn't track for me. Yeah. If they were somehow making it seem like they were luring him into the trap by taking the basket there, but then there was really no trap. It almost didn't work. It's a confusing sequence because we get the emotional impact where we just, we need to get to the point where we feel like Indy feels like he's basically just killed Marion. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, by accident. And now he's distraught and drowning his sorrows. So I actually have another complaint about that scene, though, too. Yeah. Because, okay. So Indy shoots the driver. And then the car gives the illusion that it's going to drive past Indy. And then it topples over and blows up. Well, right before that, you see that that street goes all the way across. So literally the the truck should have drove by Indy and then just hit the buildings right by it. But all oh, of a sudden yeah. it ends up in like this huge open area. And I'm like, well, how the hell did it get there? It's impossible. Like if you oh. watch the scene before, like Indy literally has like store fr- store fronts behind him or house is behind him. The truck would have had to make a hard turn. Gotcha. So, Interesting. So the, okay. So, so the layout of the area. Yeah. yeah. The layout's wrong because then the truck would have had to make a hard turn to the right which it couldn't gotcha. do because the driver's dead and then maybe turn into wherever it ends up collapsing. And, but it can't, it literally would, it should have just smashed into the wall right behind where Indy was. Right. Good call. Yeah. It's more Trouble, like a looper. Troublesome kind of sequence there. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like if a blooper. You, if you really break it down there, if you want to get really nitpicky too, when they're loading up the basket into the back of that truck and you see all the explosive, Mm-hmm. One of the German guys is in there too. He's in the back of the truck and he's like smacking the side. He's like, let's go, let's go. And then he vanishes. Oh yeah. Just completely disappears. Cause Indy shoots the two thugs, basically the Egyptian guys. Yeah. And then the truck explodes, but the other guy is completely gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did feel bad earlier when Indy starts pulling all the baskets down. I mean, there's that cool shot where oh, he's right. following Marion, and then all right. of a sudden you see his eyes go wide, and you see all these people carrying baskets. Oh, it's a wonderful shot. Yeah. Great camera work in that shot. Yeah. I was like, you only need to pull the baskets of the guys with the white, with the black head gears. And he's pulling down all the ones with, you know, white head gears. I'm like, well, you know, you know they don't have the baskets. I feel for those guys because it seems like it's clearly laundry day. Okay. Yeah. And he's pulling, yanking all the baskets down, and they're all like, Motherfucker, I just washed this shit. I, don't, I, I am out of quarters, bitch. Yep. And my clothes are in the fucking sand again. Thanks a lot. You yep. want who wants sandy clothes? Not me. Nobody does. I had this basket perfectly balanced. I was showing off, and then this freaking tourist runs by me and yanks the uh, tourists. American assholes. I uh, know. All right. Any other complaints? Granted, you know, that Sala, you know, has his ear to the ground and kind of like he knows what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And he figures that Indy's going to end up at this local watering hole, probably. And then with. But how did he know he was going to be there or that he was in trouble with Belloc? How did he how would he know enough to send the kids in? Um, I've always had, I've always been curious about that. Like, it's kind of like he how would he know that that Indy is really in danger? I would only say that he would probably know that's where Belloc hangs out, but why would he know Indy was in there at that time? No idea. 
Well, if he, let's say, I'm going to give the, the, uh, Sala the benefit of the doubt. Like he's found, like he, again, he gets all the information. In right. Town. He, like he knows yeah. the goings on. He under, he knows he gets, he gets all the movements. He understands what's going on. And he finds out that Marion's been killed. He clearly has gotten that information. He says mm-hmm. as much later on, but um, so he knows then Indy must be depressed. He's distraught. He's upset. He's gone to drink his sorrows away. And the one place he'd go would be this particular roadhouse, if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. And that's the joint where he's, he's going to end up at. And now he's there with Belloc. Let's say he peers in the little window. He's always oh, with Belloc. But to know that all the locals there also have automatic weapons and that his life is in danger to send the kids in on cue. Or maybe he's just waiting outside with all the kids. Well, he might guys, know. I, I don't know. Well, he might know then that Indy got summoned to Belloc because mm-hmm. it's not like Indy just ended up there. He got summoned there. That's a good point. No, it's he true. Might. He did. Yeah, he did. Because he was drinking alone at first. And then he does get the two guys come over to him and say, you're coming with us. Yeah, so, that, so that might work with what you're saying, that Sala might be waiting out there with the kids. And then once he sees everyone pulls guns, he's like, kids, get in there, which right. is pretty ballsy of a dad to do that to your kids. Yeah, you're putting your kids in the line of fire here. Almost, well, almost. Right. So it almost works, but it's very unplausible. A lot. It's a lot of yeah. The stars aligning for that to work. A uh, couple of quick nitpicks. Otherwise, is when somehow Indy got onto the U boat. The U boat goes to the secret island where they're going to perform the ritual and open the Ark of the Covenant. And we see somehow now Indy's gotten off the U boat and is basically in like the cargo bay yes. of the secret island area and is all he's sopping wet so he's clearly he was underwater for a bit and Mm -hmm. he needs to get a disguise so he has to disguise himself as a german soldier and one of the he knocks out one of the german soldiers and is putting on his clothes thinking he's going to be all set the jacket doesn't fit then another soldier comes up to him and is like what are you doing you're all unkempt basically he's spouting some sort of german and i'm like first of all didn't indiana jones just knock out a guy to and steal his clothes. Where's that guy? Yeah. So when the other guy walks up to him, is like, "Why are you looking all disheveled?" Wouldn't that soldier be like, "There's another soldier unconscious lying next to him. This is this guy's no bueno. Like he's bad." I thought that really quick, and I was like, "Oh, maybe he just hit him real quick." Yeah, tuck him under because, like, right behind was that cover of supplies. Maybe he hit him just under threw there. him under the tarp. I did think the same thing. Wait, what did he, what did he do with the guy? I don't know. I think Indy, he just stands out like a sore thumb a bit, too, and he's disguised right. as a German soldier. And he has a different color jacket on. Like, he's of a different rank. That like, Dietrich, bruise. who's like, yeah, he's just all messed up, yeah. and he's got a five o'clock shadow going, and it's just like, no. I'm like, I don't think you, you'd fit. And then all of a sudden, you know, he shows up with a bazooka when mm-hmm. they're marching with the Ark to the ritual area, which... All that that's shot in Tunisia, I guess. And that is supposedly one of the same caverns where R2D2 was. With the yes, Jawas. that is correct. Yep. They shot that in the same location, which would have been really cool if R2 kind of like rolled oh, yeah. right through that scene. Yeah. <laughs> R2. R2 that way. <laughs> yes, you beat me to it. <laughs> I I think I've seen it, but I, I forget to look for it sometimes in the map room, I guess. 
there is one of like the hieroglyphs or something on the walls is there is a C3PO R2D2. It's in the well itself, like right when there you see Indy lifting. Oh, that's where it is. You're right. I have yeah, seen it. It's on the well of yeah. the souls. It's not Correct. in the map room. It's in the actual well of the souls when they're it's lifting on one the arc up and you can yeah. see. It's yeah, on one can. of the pillars. Right. That's right. Yeah. Where you can see C3PO and R2D2 on the wall. Once you find it, yeah, you can never unsee it. It's so obvious, which is funny because you, I mean, I must have saw the movie 40 times until I read about it. Right. And that it is clear as day. Yeah. My last question or complaint question slash complaint is once they open the arc and all of the apparition slash spirits slash uh, hot lady ghosts turn to skeletal, scary, freaky ghosts, start killing all the soldiers and the lightning balls flash out. Indy tells Marion to close her eyes. Whatever you do, don't open your eyes. Don't look at it, Mary. Close your eyes. How do he know to do that? I always wondered that too. Like and how? I always know I would peak, so I'd be dead too. Right. <laughs> so those, yeah, those two things. I don't know why he knows just to do that. Sec. I just want to see for a sec. Yeah. What's going on? It sounds so cool. Because I love the fact that he knows that. Maybe because he did go to Sunday school and he knew that according to legend. Mm-hmm. That the power of God, these uh, angel uh, slash evil spirits, that if you weren't like, let's say this is uh, hypothetically what the story would be, is that if you were to lay your eyes upon them, that meant you felt as if you were on the same level as them. And that would be disrespectful. You have to, in order to respect these this higher power, you should be closing your eyes. Does that make sense a little bit? Like the meaning it does. You, sh- you are not worthy to lay your eyes upon such a, you're, you're taking it to an 11. I yeah. Think. Deity. And thus he indeed is like, close your eyes. You can't look at it. It will destroy you. It's, it's beyond your, it's not, it's beyond your understanding or whatever, you know, yeah, I, wish too much. That. I wish they explained that for us dumb audience members. Cause I still don't get that either. Like, how does he know to do that? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the key. Just yeah. don't don't look at it. I didn't learn that in Catholic school. I know that much. <laughs> all right, that's all I got, man. I got two. Yeah. All right. I've never been shot in the arm. Thank God. Do you, I mean, if I got shot in the arm, then I got thrown off a truck. I got shot in the arm twice. Oh, did but you? That was just my vaccination. Gotcha. <laughs> and then and then got thrown through. a a car over a truck and then drag behind on my whip. Could I really pull myself back into the truck? I mean, would I be in so much pain? <laughs> right. I don't think I could move that arm. No, no. Yeah. It's great. It's a good call. I, I don't I think mean with the adrenaline like, pumping for those, of, for those of us that are fortunate enough to not have uh, been shot. Um, yeah. I, from what I've heard, it's very painful. All right. And then my, my last complaint, how does Indy keep his job at the university? He's a murderer. He's a murderer. He yeah. shot, he shot that swordsman in cold blood. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's true. I mean, uh, yeah. we don't, we don't know that he was going to attack Indy. He could have been a street vendor, just showing off his sword skills. And then Indy just shot him. He's a murderer. I you I can't argue with that. I mean, some of the Egyptian guys that ran off with Marion in the basket, you know, and they throw her on the truck and they're just driving away and he just shoots him. Yeah, he's killed a lot of people. I don't know how you keep 
I mean, he must have tenure. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, our friends in high places that are just, you know, keeping this stuff on the download. That uh, I guess the female enrollment would drop dramatically if he was not teaching there, I guess. <laughs> That's true. I, I don't know. But he's a, he's a stone cold murderer. Wow. I'm going to look at, yeah, I have to, I got to look at this movie differently now. Yeah. I mean, that seems hilarious. We all love it. But yeah, he just murdered a man. It's, yeah. All right. After that little deepness, <laughs> we just got serious. Yeah, I love it. I wanted to give it a moment of silence to the swordsman. All right, so let's move on to our next segment. It's hey, it's that. All right, let's keep it light, folks. Yep. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut. Or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. And Jason, I think you and I might have the same person. I'm, Uh-oh. I'm guessing this right now. Okay. So I'm going to let you go first. Oh, uh, you know what? I think we do. We probably do now that I think about it. Okay. And that's fine. Because, I mean, this episode is already like seven hours long. So. Right. It literally is. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going with somebody who I've mentioned several times already. Okay. So is, is it somebody I've mentioned at least a few times already? Maybe. Oh, okay. So I'm going with Katanga. Oh, that, no. Oh, good. We're different. All right. Great. So Katanga, captain of the Bantu Wind, the cargo ship upon which they load the crate holding the Ark. You know, Indy and Marion are going to escort this Ark across the seas back to the U.S. Uh, Katanga is played by George Harris, who... Previous to this, 1980 was in a film called Flash Gordon. He's the Prince of Ardentia. Oh, my God. I never put that together. (laughs) Holy crap. I'd heard this one other time, and I was like, oh, my God, it totally is him. It is. As soon as you said that. Either I saw it. I don't know if I figured it out or if I heard it. I don't want to take credit for that. I think I heard it. Yes. But I was like, Prince of Ardentia. I have nothing to offer you this year since you blasted our kingdom. Yep. <laughs> wow. You can hear his voice, right? Yes. You're like, ah, oh, it's Katanga from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, this is awesome. I can't wait till I do my, hey, it's that actor now. Right. And you know what? In 1989, he plays a bartender in the movie, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. No. <laughs> no. Which we brought up again last week. Wow. We did Roadhouse because it had beat Roadhouse at the box office in 1989. And then the week <laughs> previous was Stir Crazy, of course. Wow. We don't, yeah. So this is the this third is all podcast have in a row where we're mentioning see no evil, hear no evil. So George Harris also had small parts in Black Hawk Down and Layer Cake and would go on to play Kingsley Shacklebolt in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, as well as Deathly Hollows parts one and two. Oh shit. Yeah. Damn. He is definitely a hey inside actor. Holy shit. George Harris. Katanga. That's a good one. I cannot believe he's in Flash Gordon. I never put that together. And between the those two movies, I've at least seen them over a hundred times. Right. Oh my God. That's awesome. Who's your hey it's that actor? Okay. So my hey it's that actor is Major Eaton, played by William Hookins. 
So he was one of the two uh, men from military intelligence who approached Dr. Jones about the information of the Ark. William had some bits in some classic and blockbuster movies. He was Munson in Flash Gordon, who was on <laughs> Zarkos. Yes, he was. Oh who my gets god, that's great! Because when I was watching the movie and I saw and I saw him, God, there's a scene I know where he goes crazy and runs off, and I couldn't remember what it was at first. And I was like, "Yes, Flash Gordon." He runs oh out because Han wants to put the rocket, and then the plane comes back and literally runs him over. Yep. And um, he also played Eckerd, the dirty cop in Batman. And gets killed, oh, sure, by right. Jack Napier. Oh, yeah. he's memorable. Actually, I, I yeah, absolutely. I know exactly yes. who he is in that. But yeah, right in the and, yeah. And his big role, he plays Red Six Porkins in oh, Star Wars. Oh my god! Of course. And guess what? He gets killed in that movie also right. when his X-wing blows up from Turbo Blaster Crossfire. Yeah, he unfortunately passed away at the age of uh, fifty-seven, huh. two thousand five, from cancer. Top. Men. It was funny because when I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, it's going to be hard to come up with a hey, it's an actor. But man, we we hit out of the park on this one. That is amazing. Two awesome ones. That's great. Porkins. Yep. Last of our kingdom. Oh, I love that voice. It's on the soundtrack, too. Yes. Yeah. He's on the actual Queen soundtrack. Yep. (laughs) Oh. All right, so let's move on to box office. So this movie was released on June 12th, 1981 on an estimated budget of $20 million. It grossed $188.8 million domestically. It debuted at number one at the box office. It was number one at the box office eight times and was in the box office top 10 for 40 consecutive weeks. It was re-released again on July 16, 1982, and landed number two at the box office behind another Spielberg film, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. It was then released on September 7, 2012, for IMAX screenings, which brought its total domestic gross to $222.7 million and a worldwide gross of $141.8 million for a total gross of $367.5 million dollars wow yeah maybe did well that's good that's good it's good numbers good numbers yeah not bad not bad so moving on to reviews uh when growing up in the early 80s we loved catching sneak previews with gene Siskel and roger ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies their review of raiders was unanimous two very very enthusiastic thumbs up Gene called it a very impressive film that hit so many marks. It was excellent. Roger found the film to have a wealth of imagination. It has everything with its breakneck action and one of the best chase scenes he ever saw. Raiders currently sits at number 56 on IMDb's top rated movies on its website. So let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Raiders? Is there anything left we need to talk about, Jason? Additional thoughts. So, you know, I didn't have a lot. I just wanted to just uh, to tag on the fact that I love the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. I love the queue, the ride itself. I'm eh. Okay. I'll yeah, be the queue, that, right. The queue is great. I love the stunt show. It was the Hollywood Studios now. MGM yeah. Studios, or it used to be MGM Studios. Yeah, well, it used to be MGM Studios. I always did love the stunt show. There you go. 
that's uh, really it. I, I'm just going to kind of continue with deep questions, kind of go, kind of mix my thoughts and questions. Okay. Do you have thoughts or expectations of Indiana Jones five? You know, it's funny. I'm excited about it, but I'm also, I'm like, what can Harrison Ford do at this age? Mm-hmm. That's going to make the film ex- like, how are they going to position this to make it exciting for, I mean, he cannot do what he did in Raiders. He right. can't even do what he did in Crystal Skull. Yeah, and and will this be a passing of the torch? And then to whom it will the torch be passed? I mean, look, I'm a fan of Phoebe Waller Bridge, Boyd Holbrook, Mads Mikkelsen is it also in this with Antonio yeah, it's Banderas. Good. It's a great cast. Yeah, I I'm a big James Mangold fan, the director. Yes, I mean we're talking about Copland, Logan. 310 to Yuma. I love that movie, man. That remake. I know all the ingredients are there. Night and Day actually is an underrated Tom Cruise movie. I love everything about that movie except for the, the score. I'm not a fan of the music from that movie, but I love the movie. Wow. I'm a, I'm a James Mangold fan, man. Mm-hmm. So I've got some medium expectations, but have you? Yeah, I was looking at some of the location photos on IMDb. And uh, yeah, I mean, Harrison Ford's old yeah, and he looks old, still looks good. I mean, he looks, he's still a stud. I mean, he's, and I love seeing him in the, in the, uh, the costume, Mm -hmm. but just don't know. We don't know what he'll be capable of or what uh, role he'll be playing or how instrumental he'll be in this, the action set pieces, et cetera. We'll just have to wait and see how creative they get. Yeah, I wish they hadn't waited so long to stop it and then decide to do it again. They should just kept rolling out new movies every like three, four years. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got another question. Let's stick to the original trilogy. Okay. Because I heard on a different podcast, which I enjoy very much, a discussion. It, they didn't really pit these movies against one another, but there was just a difference of opinion as to which was kind of a uh, more of a favorite for these particular people. And so, but I'm looking at it. I'm going to pit these two against you. It's Raiders Lost Ark versus Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Mm -hmm. It seems to me there's, it's obviously, first of all, just, it's just a matter of opinion, right? Art is a matter of opinion. And there's an interesting, I found over the years, kind of a, it's, I can't really call it a generation gap. It's more of what I call like a decade gap. It's a matter of like 10 to 15 years where People have, we all have an attachment to a film, like I said earlier, because it depends on when and where and with whom you saw the movie a lot of the time. It's not even necessarily if the movie was really technically good. And I mean, technically good, it could just be you have a nostalgic attachment to it because of the under the circumstances of which you saw it. Now, I have, I like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade a lot. You Mm -hmm. you know, the, the question is like, What's better than Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford and Sean Connery? Okay, yeah, I guess that's pretty pretty good. It was a brilliant uh, turn with the casting. There's a lot of great things about it, but it's just not the same for me as Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it, there's just people that about 10 to 15 younger than us that I think have a real attachment to Last Crusade. Like versus, Kind of like I've talked to you about this offline with movies like Independence Day. I'm not a fan, but people about 10 years younger than us think Independence Day is one of the best action sci-fi films ever made. 
Yeah, I have that the friend's ten like ten years younger than me, likes Ghostbusters two more than one. And I'm like, See, what? right. Yeah, there's a it's, it's just because of like, that, they you know, they kind of came up when those mm-hmm. movies came out and were such a big deal and were huge blockbusters and changed their way of seeing films, maybe. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It had an impact on how they saw this medium of entertainment. And it's kind of it's kind of like uh again. I prefer Raiders Lost Ark. I prefer The Terminator. I prefer Alien as opposed to Last Crusade or T2. Aliens, as we've done on this very podcast, is genius. Yeah. Probably my favorite James Cameron, but it's still, I'm still going to be part. If you got to twist my arm, I'm going to go with Alien. Mm -hmm. Now, even though it may have been slightly before my time, there's a, some sort of, there's a style of filmmaking that lends itself to, the detail and attention to there's a practical aspect, whether it's the use of miniatures or the combination of every different aspect of filmmaking that just had a different impact on me. And again, that's it changed the way I looked at movies for sure. And it was during my formative years. And that's how I took in or uh, absorbed this type of entertainment. So maybe that's it's just a personal attachment thing. I just think it's interesting that it made me think of it because there are those that are real last crusade heads versus Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, just, just when you compare openings, I mean, the opening for last crusade is cute. Cause you know, you kind of get some backstory on how Indy became Indy, but I mean, you put that against the opening of Raiders, it's not even close. And then they, they basically took the opening of Raiders and just moved it to the back end of last crusade mm-hmm. with his own little Trips and I, I don't think those devices are any better than what he went through in the first temple. Yeah, it's cool. He's got Sean Connery, it's the whole father son dynamic. Yeah, I mean, we could break that all down too. Yeah, Last Crusade is a little bit slower for me, it's a little cheesier, it gets a little sticky in moments. Mm-hmm. You know, him running into Adolf Hitler is a little too much for me. Yeah, some of the stuff with uh, the the relationship aspect is there. They lean a little heavier on the comedy, the comicals sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Because even like the, you know, they tried to match like the fight on the boat that's being torn up by the propeller. That doesn't match up with the fight, even at the plane. The pacing is off for me. Everything in Last Crusade is just a half step slower. This is still fun, but I'm. It's not as engaging. I don't know. Raiders does so much in such a way that is so inventive at every term. And it just is rock and roll the whole time. And I'll be honest too. And I, I really like last crusade. So I know oh, absolutely. It kind of sounds like I'm kind Don't of get me it. wrong, please. Audience, those listeners, people like I adore these films. I adore temple of doom. I'm, I'm learning to appreciate temple of doom more and more. And I will defend temple of doom. Yeah. You know, and again, I'm not making excuses. It just is what it is. Raiders was mm-hmm. the first it was the game changer. It is the one that redefined the action adventure film and it's brilliant. And you just, but it holds up in a way that I don't think Temple of Doom or Last Crusade hold up as much. Correct. Yeah. Cause there is some special effects in Crusade that the stuff on the Zeppelin doesn't look like, like. Yeah. I don't know what was going on there, but that's okay. It still has, I still will, I've watched, I don't know how many times I've watched Last Crusade. I'll still watch it now. I watched mm-hmm. it just recently with my dad. Yeah. It was great. I love sharing that stuff with my dad. 
you know, because it's fun. We it's Indiana Jones, man. I'm not I'm not bad mouthing it. It's just if we're putting our feet to the or to the fire here on, on that question, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Raiders. You know. Yes. So, but yeah, it, it I think it would on a deeper level. Like our question is that again. I don't know if it's like a full generation gap, but it's just interesting. Just people that are ten years younger. I guess would that be a different? I guess a different generation, maybe. Yeah, that's um, enough. Just used to different types of movies because of, I think too. Could you could make an argument that the age of the technology in film, because going from the practical effects to CG, kind of happened within that period, right? When you're going from 80s to 90s. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. And then it, the style of filmmaking changes, and it just becomes, you know, I think it had an effect on storytelling as well. Then eventually, you know, on a certain yeah. level. So anyway. That's all I got with that, Matt. Did you have any uh, thoughts or and or questions? I was I don't know. I just found Marion and Indy as a cute pair. I don't know. There's something about Marion that worked really well with Indy. Like she's yeah. definitely not my type, and she does have kind of a cute smile sometimes. Oh sure, yeah. but yeah, she's not your. You could definitely see like in the next two, they kind of went for a lot more attractive leading actresses for some reason, right? But yeah, Indian Mary were meant to be. The yeah, I really I I like their chemistry a lot. Yeah, um, and I thought Karen Allen, uh, yeah, it was just she had an edge. She just had mm. an edge that worked for that that kind of movie. I'm like, I buy this. I buy this. I buy these people. I buy these relationships. I'm in. Yeah, just I think I again upon rewatching it, and I watched this. Uh, I would like to see like an the an original cut of this movie like on on original film stock versus digitally remastered or even like I watched it today like HDX UHD and it looked amazing and it still holds up man it looks so good and it was cool and it was really pretty but uh yeah I was just still just impressed by the all of the filmmaking techniques that are used in this movie to make it great I just can't, I can't stress it enough. It is funny because when I was watching the Cisco and Ebert review of this, someone replaced the footage that they used on the show with the high end footage and just like, wow, this looks amazing. Ah. It was kind of funny that someone actually took the time to take out the footage and replace it with the, with the new stuff. But I was like, holy crap, I don't think I've ever seen this print this crisp before. Right. So yeah, as far as additional thoughts go, yeah, I just... I'm cont- I am continually surprised by how impressive that this movie is. That's it's it's my number one film of the eighties, and yeah, there's so much information out there on it, and we could go on and on and on and on. Right? And on. Yeah, we did not we did not include a lot of like facts yeah. and trivia. We barely scratched the surface, but we just love this film. But you can find it. Yeah, you can find it online. Yeah, I used to have a fedora that I got at at Disney. For a while, the thing got so dusty. I I had to trash it. Yeah, that's funny. That's cool, man. I could see you in a fedora. I think you could rock that. I I was thinking that too at the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, I wish we went back to that day and age where everyone was wearing cool suits and fedoras. I kind of like that look. It is a great look. That works. Sure, should bring that back. All right, man. Do we want to wrap up? Yeah. So, um, oh no, we got recommendation is uh, if you have not seen this movie. Go see this movie. I, I don't know what else to say. It's got everything. This is what I'm going to say is 
you and I, Bill, are filmmakers and movie fans, but we're simply passing through history. This, this is history. I recommend this film because it is a history lesson in filmmaking. There you go. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this season. Holy crap, man. Bill, congratulations on season one of the All 80s Movies podcast. Man. It's been an honor and a privilege to be doing this with you. Here's to season two. Bill Bant, you are a scholar and a gentleman and a consummate professional. Thank you for all that you do for this podcast. Thank you to the listeners that have found us, that have stuck with us, to the listeners that have yet to find us. We thank you for your support to all our friends and loved ones that are going on this journey with us. It's been a blast, and we hope to bring you more quality content in the future. And uh, Jason, just thanks for uh, willing to take this journey with me. Through yeah, the man. Ah, it's so much fun. We're, yeah, we're really looking forward to season two. Um, so our next episode will be a mini-sode recap of season one. And uh, we'll give a little sneak peek into uh, what we'll be doing for season two. And that'll come out uh, sometime in January. All right, here we go. As always, please subscribe. Give us a review and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great year, everyone. Happy holidays. Be safe. Thanks for staying up with us. And good night, world. We'll see you next year. for a moment. Did I fuck up? It's all, it's all good, brother. It's all good.